0: This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by Sam Hendricks Photography. Sam Hendricks Photography. We specialize in nighttime location shoots at any distance.
1: Under the outover with the steamboats In Chicago and wallows Come at the grand light like, making a slam the smell of death is on the rails.
0: and the night when the cool wind blows, no one cares, Hello, my name is Chris.
2: My name is Kelsey.
0: And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. It's sensory deprivation week on Pod Cemetery, with 1967's Wait Until Dark and 2016's Hush. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial
2: Pursuit Horror Edition.
0: Give me what you got.
2: I'm going to try to do this without the options. See okay. if you know the answer. See how it goes. Which character is spared by Kevin Wendell Crumb in 2016's Split?
0: I mean, I don't know her name. You don't know her name? No.
2: You'll know it once I say it. Okay. Claire Benoit. Casey Cook or Marsha?
0: Casey Cook. That's right. Yeah. All right, Kelsey. I'll go with one that we haven't covered on the show yet, but you've seen and I haven't. Okay. In The Orphanage, 2007, what does Simon require daily to survive? I urge you not to overthink it.
2: It's not like food, right?
0: No. I mean, food, oxygen, water. Like...
2: (laughs) Well, I guess you don't need s- food supposed daily. to be dead. Okay. So I'm wondering, if that's what it is. Um, Spoilers. <laughs> I don't know what is it.
0: It says here medication.
2: Oh, I do remember that. That is part of the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, now I know something about a movie I haven't seen yet. I guess.
2: <laughs> El Orfanato. <laughs>
0: All right, Kelsey, moving on. We're going to talk about our first movie, Wait Until Dark, from 1967, based on a play by Frederick Knott, screenplay written by Robert Carrington and Jane Howard Hammerstein, directed by Terence Young, and starring Audrey Hepburn, Alan Arkin, Richard Crenna, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. What is Wait Until Dark about?
2: A woman who was recently blinded is victimized by three men who are after some drugs that are in her apartment that she is not aware of.
0: Good. Awesome. Should people watch this movie?
2: Yes, but beware that it is very melodramatic.
0: Yes. I love Audrey Hepburn. She just... there are bite marks all over the set. She's just chewing that scenery so hard. (laughs) She's way over the top in this movie. But I think she does an admirable job of playing a blind person.
2: Yeah, it's not her fault that the character sucks.
0: (laughs) I mean, if you think about the fact that it's based on a play... I can see that a little bit more, actually, especially since it takes place in mostly one location.
2: It takes place in the 60s, and I understand that.
0: Yeah. So, but I think it it was, I was expecting some 60s home invasion movie or something like that. I was surprised by the quality of this film. I thought it was really good. I liked it a lot, and I would recommend people watch it. But you're just kind of hesitant a little bit because of those things?
2: It's very melodramatic, and feminists might have a problem with the characterization of Audrey Hepburn's character. Ephraim.
0: (laughs) Ephraim, Zimbalist Jr., who plays her husband. That dude, let me tell you, man, he's like, like, I get how he is, you know, hey, you need to be able to take care of yourself, and you're not going to get very far being blind if I help you do everything. But as a result, he doesn't help her do anything. Which is...
2: That's not the part I'm talking No, I about. know. <laughs> you,
0: just, you just made me think about that. Uh-uh. Yeah. But we'll get into all of that in just a moment. You can take our advice or leave it. Because when we get back, we will talk about 1967's Wait Until Dark.
1: Audrey Hepburn. The role you're going to remember whenever you're alone. It still don't move. She is blind. And she is alone. With a terrible suspicion growing. You went right down the list and told me that the doll linked Sam and Mrs. wrote And now Mrs. Road's dead. Murdered right next door. But maybe I was wrong. That doesn't matter. If you thought that way, the police will think that way. <sighs>
0: Kelsey, before we talk about the movie, I want to talk a little bit about Terrence Young, the guy who directed this. Okay. Just to give you a little bit of background on him. He is probably most famous for directing James Bond movies. As a matter of fact, he directed the first James Bond movie, or the first uh, major James Bond movie, Dr. No. He also directed the two that, I like when I was a little kid, I was like, I want to know about this James Bond fella. Right? And so I, I bought... James Bond movies from the Best Buy on VHS.
1: <laughs>
0: and I, I literally bought the two that looked the coolest to me. They were From Russia With Love and Thunderball. Thunderball has Jaws and Sharks. And From Russia With Love is just so good. I love that one. <laughs> he directed both of those as well. He also directed a documentary for Momar Gaddafi, the Libyan dictator. <laughs> Which has never been seen outside Libya, apparently. (laughs) Seems like a really weird thing for him to have done. Gaddafi is not a cool dude. Interestingly, he was also in the military and he was in World War II. He was a paratrooper. He was obviously British. And he got injured. He was transferred to a hospital in Holland where one of the volunteer nurses who nursed him back to health was a 16-year-old Audrey Hindstra, who later would become Audrey Hepburn.
2: No way.
0: Yeah. 20 years prior to the making of this movie.
2: That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy.
0: Yeah. thought that was pretty nice. Is
2: that what she originally was? She was originally just she, a, a she's, nurse?
0: She's Dutch. She was a volunteer nurse. She was a teenager during the war, so she was just volunteering as a nurse. Yeah, so...
1: I thought that was was an
0: interesting little tale going into this, that they knew each other uh, from, quote unquote, the war. The war. (laughs) The war. So you want to walk us through, wait until dark, what happens in this movie?
2: We start by learning about the drug situation. So we open on some girl and this dude, and they are putting drugs into a doll.
0: In France?
2: Some other country. Yeah. And when she flies back, she is startled by Alan Arkin, who is there to meet her. Yes. And so because she's so startled, she hands the doll off to some random guy that was on the same flight as her.
0: Yes, who is Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.
2: Which seems like... Kind of the worst idea <laughs>
0: to do. Yeah, well, I mean, the idea is it. it the the heroin is sewn into this doll. Heroin. Yeah.
2: Not wh- the heroin. Heroin.
0: The heroin. The, the drug heroin. heroin. <laughs> the heroin in question.
2: We need to be careful. Is, is, yes,
0: Audrey Hepburn is sewn into this doll. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> the drugs are sewn into this doll, and it's just like. Hey, can you take this for me? I'm going to deliver it to somebody. Like, there's no explanation. We, They talk, but we don't hear it.
2: Yeah, we don't hear their conversation.
0: And And they agree effectively that she's going to come back for it later. She obviously doesn't trust Alan Arkin looking real sleazy in that haircut.
2: Kelsey, I, it took me a while to real like I, I kept looking. You for asked him.
0: me if it was Alan Arkin. I'm I like, yeah, that's Alan Arkin. Looking, and I was
2: like, <laughs> is that Alan
0: Arkin? Kelsey, what do we know Alan Arkin from?
2: I mainly actually know him from <laughs> Little Miss Sunshine. That's not true. <laughs> yes, it is. It
0: is not true. I also
2: know him from Argo.
0: Yes, Argo. Fuck yourself. Argo. Fuck yourself. Yes. Kelsey. Ah, uh, you're gonna be so mad at yourself. Why? He's the dad in Edward Scissorhands. Oh,
2: that's right. <laughs> that's right.
0: About women getting all their—they blow they up blow like up a balloon. Or- glands. Glands.
2: <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I
0: don't know what it is. They reach a certain
1: age. They develop these gland things. Their bodies swell up. They go crazy.
0: Glans? Glands. Yeah, <laughs> yes, Alan Arkin is totally awesome, and he plays a really creepy sleazebag in this. Yes, he does. He, he does a fantastic job, even with his weird accent that he has. <laughs> it's
2: that weird 60s accent that was going on at yeah. the time.
0: <laughs> but, I mean, you hear his voice, and it sounds like just a young Alan Arkin.
1: Now, these three were find of performing little dramas for select audiences, Their most memorable performances were that of outraged husband and detective breaking in upon guilty wife in the arms of a lover, or vice versa. They were adaptable.
2: It's pretty crazy. I'm so used to him being old that it's weird to see him (laughs) young.
0: I guess, yeah.
2: (laughs) It also has its own song.
0: Yes. Wait until dark.
1: (laughs) Wait until dark and we'll be warm. Our place of love is where we face our dreams together. Where our fantasies take
0: form. Performed by Sue Rainey. The music was made by Henry Mancini, who did the music for the rest of the movie. He was the composer for the film.
2: And we know that name, don't we?
0: Yes. He's done a few things. As a matter of fact, he either wrote the score or specific songs for Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is another Audrey Hepburn movie, obviously. Charade. The Pink Panther. So, you know, da 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 that's Henry Mancini Touch of Evil The Great Race, Victor Victoria he did all of those he had a a commemorative stamp made for him after he passed away uh, about like 15 years ago or so and he has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame Uh, he was also inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame back in 1984 so very famous composer who wrote this oh so 60s song (laughs) So, we hear the song and then...
2: I love all the costumes from this movie. Yes. Oh, it's so wonderfully 60s. It is. I love the coats the women wear and the hats that they wear. I love it so much. (laughs) I was born in the wrong decade. (laughs) Then we get to meet these two guys who work with the woman who we saw in the very first scene who was getting the drugs sewn into the doll.
0: Yes, so that girl's name is Lisa, played by Samantha Jones.
2: And Lisa might as well be Cruella DeVille because she wears these gigantic coats. And then she has these two, one tall, skinny, one short, fat henchmen. Yeah. Just like Jasper and whoever the other one's name is. (laughs) Horace am I I think it's Horace maybe <laughs> we're uh, not looking it up but these two kind of bumbling henchmen yes that Carlino
0: and Mike played by Jack Weston and Richard Crenna respectively
2: and they initially go into the house. That Audrey Hepburn and her husband live in, because they are the under the impression that the blonde, who we initially saw, uh-huh. would be waiting in there for them. Yes. But it is all a ruse set up by Alan Arkin. Who
0: we will call Rote when we refer to him. He plays several different characters, all named Rote.
2: They discover very quickly this is not that woman's house. Yes. There are pictures all over the place of a happily married couple, and it is certainly not the woman ...that they know. Yeah. The short, fat one takes out the brass knuckles, and the tall, skinny one has a straight razor. So
0: that's Carlino with the knuckles and Mike with the razor.
2: In walks Alan Arkin, and at first he acts as if he's working with her, and he's like, Oh, she's not here right now. This is the situation that we are in. There is a doll in this house that has the drugs that we are looking for but we don't know where it is, you need to find it. And at first they're like, eh, and they ask him questions, and they're like, do we have to hurt anybody? And he goes, not a fly, do you care? Mm -hmm. And they say no. But we learn later that they do care.
0: Yes. They they don't
2: want to hurt anybody. I get the impression that they have hurt people in the past, but that is not their inclination.
0: And when he explains, when Rhode explains to them what happened to Lisa and why the doll is here, he says straight out, she met someone at the airport that she wasn't expecting. We know that he's the one she met.
2: Yes. And they immediately find a safe and they're like, well, it's probably in the safe. And he's like, and that's why you're here. You are here to essentially talk your way into the safe.
1: We don't work safes. I know, but you talk. And that's why you've been invited to this party to talk your way into that big black safe, Sergeant.
2: But then the tall skinny one Mike. is like, "Also, there's a locked closet." And Alnarkin says, "Oh, yeah, we already checked in there. There's nothing in there." And he's like, "How did you get in?" And he's like, "Oh, there's a key above the door." And like, he goes, no, "There's not. I checked. Not anymore." Uh-huh. And that's when Alan Arkin shows his true colors.
0: Yeah, they they all kind of turn on each other and they're, there's going to be violence. It's a really ridiculous standoff between these three guys. And he says, if you'd only said please, <laughs> a really cheesy line, and he gives them the keys to go check in the closet. And so he does.
2: And they find their blonde friend Lisa. zipped up in like a suit thing from like a dry cleaner. A garment
0: bag. Yeah. so
2: they now know we're in a lot of trouble.
0: They're like, oh, shit, we got to get out of here. And he's like, are you sure? Because I can leave. I haven't touched a fucking thing. Y'all's fingerprints are all over this place. And you know what? They're coming home soon, this lovely couple or whatever. They're not going to be gone for forever. They're like, well, we'll just clean up. And it's like, it's going to take you hours What did you touch? Did you touch the safe? Did you touch the refrigerator? Because I don't remember what you touched.
2: (laughs) Haven't you forgotten something?
1: We just earned the money. I mean, fingerprints.
2: You just signed your names all over this place. Mm, Even if you could remember everything you touched, it would still take hours to wipe them up, wouldn't it? If
0: not days. And so there's this whole big deal where now they know they need to dispose of the body. That's task number one. (laughs) And then task number two is they need to find this doll, get the doll somehow, without the cops ever being the wiser.
2: Mm -hmm. This is around the point where I wrote, this feels like panic room.
0: Yes. So (laughs) Kelsey was putting together this whole thing about all the ways it's like panic room. And I cannot deny that. Uh, Panic room takes a lot of sort of premise or major plot beats from this movie. Uh, but the actual motivations and what people end up actually doing and how they respond to things, all of that's different. The story is different. But a lot of these, like, individual moments are the same. You want to go over some of those?
2: We haven't gotten into Audrey Hepburn's character yet. We haven't mm. gotten into her neighbor, the little girl, yet. Yeah. But essentially what you need to know is that Audrey Hepburn is basically Jodie Foster. She has a neighbor who is a little girl who is essentially Kristen... Stewart? Stewart. Kristen Stewart's character. And there's these three guys that are entering her home. And they are here for something that she doesn't even know is in her house. Yeah. She's not aware of its significance at all. She's got two guys who are relatively nice guys, mm-hmm. and she's got one guy who's insane, That she and they're all after this thing, and she is at a major disadvantage. In this version, she is blind. In panic room, she's stuck in a room. But mm-hmm. both times, these disadvantages give her advantages yeah. over her assailants yeah. that they are not aware of.
0: So- because I was not about to have her <laughs> besmirch the David Fincher name, I looked up who wrote Panic Room. And the man who wrote Panic Room is one David Kep. That name might sound familiar to you because he wrote Secret Window and Stir of Echoes.
2: And Jurassic he Park. He
0: also wrote Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible, the one from 96, and the 2002 Spider-Man. Now, two of those movies we covered on the show, but what do all of those movies have in common?
2: They're all adaptations! Yes!
0: Uh (laughs) I'm so right. (laughs) He also did The Mummy from 2017. You know that awful one? (laughs) Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit. Angels and Demons, War of the Worlds. Come on, man. (laughs) All he
2: does is adaptation. I
0: guess, yeah. He did Death Becomes Her.
2: Oh. Mm -hmm. I do love Death Becomes Her. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if something else was come out before that. That was a lot like (laughs) Death Becomes Her. So then we finally meet Audrey Hepburn.
0: She comes home and they're still there.
2: And I kind of love Alan's response, don't move, don't breathe. Stay dead still.
0: She's alone. Don't
2: breathe. And the other two don't understand why yet. All they know is we need to hide.
0: Yeah. And so they find, like, visual hiding spaces. Like, places where they can't be seen.
2: But she walks in and she walks right past Alan Arkin. Uh-huh. Because she's blind. Yes. Him. She
0: does, however, stop and pause... And call out for somebody named Gloria. We find out that this is the young girl who lives in the same building, played by Julie Harrod, who also played the same role in the stage version of the production.
2: Oh, interesting. So she comes in and she's like, Gloria, are you here? Because she can hear them.
0: Yeah. She she senses that somebody's there. Yeah. yeah.
2: She, she may she- not be able to see them. But she can hear
0: them. She goes into the closet to get a scarf and she like whips the scarf and it hits Lisa's hair and it swirls around. and She has no idea. It's this darkly comical moment that kind of accentuates exactly what her situation is.
2: Exactly. She gets on the phone with her husband and this is where it starts just right off the bat. Everything she does. Is that all right, Sam?
0: Yeah, she will literally do anything for her husband, Sam.
2: We do find out that Sam is the one that saved her life.
0: She was going to step out into traffic, and he grabbed her and stopped her. Uh, This is shortly after she became blind. And he has kind of, like, helped her become self-sufficient, which is good. And they fell in love in the process, and they got married. So this is after she's been blind. So, I mean, good for him. What a great man he is. Really, all the misogyny in this movie is all in Audrey Hepburn's character.
2: Mm -hmm. Because
0: she's very, very much, all I want to do is live for Sam.
2: Yes. It's infuriating. Yeah. It'll come up a lot. I'll try not to fixate on it. Yeah. But at that point, she's like, she's going to go meet her husband, basically. So she
0: leaves again. They clean up the body, following Rote's instructions, and they leave. Later on, it's like the next day or something like that, both Audrey Hepburn and Sam are in the apartment together, and they're having a conversation. He's developing film, we find out, which is great because he's basically in a dark room. They have this blackout uh, lower apartment where, you know, the windows are at, like, street level. And they have this blackout screen that makes the whole place dark, and she doesn't fucking give a fuck either way, right? <laughs> so it's kind of a cool relationship, but he's a photographer, we find out. That's what he does for a living. He's a professional photographer.
2: This guy sucks as an actor, whoever he is.
0: <laughs> okay, so Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., he eventually is the voice of Alfred In the Batman the Animated Series.
2: Oh, who cares?
0: How dare you?
2: (laughs) He's a terrible actor and it's terrible 60s writing. They use words like jazzy and chow. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, this, it feels like when we saw Play Misty for Me and it was like, nobody actually spoke like well, that. Well, you
0: know what? I think you're wrong.
2: <laughs> I might be wrong. I didn't live then, but ugh.
0: He was also a voice in one of my favorite video games of all time, Gabriel Knight Sins of the Fathers, which is awesome. If you want to talk like horror video games, it's an adventure game set in... Uh, Louisiana, and there's all this voodoo and stuff like that. Why
2: haven't we played those?
0: It's really well. It's an it's a point and click adventure game, so we'd have to play it on the computer. But oh. yeah, <laughs>
2: well, I love point and click. I know love you Sam do. And, Max.
0: and and do you know who the voice of Gabriel Knight is in that game? Nope. If you were to think of somebody who has a Cajun accent, who would you think of that has a Cajun accent? You're wrong. It doesn't matter who you're thinking of. It's Tim Curry. He does a Cajun accent in this game, and it's so incredible.
1: Are you sure you won't go out with me? I promise I'll be good.
0: Mark Hamill is in it. Leah Remini is in it. Michael Dorn is in it, the guy who plays Worf. So... Yes, and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.
2: (laughs) Yeah, we should definitely play that.
0: Also, Jim Cummings is in it. Wow, he plays a lot of different voices. Jim Cummings is the voice, a lot of Disney voices, but including Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. Sorry, I love voice actors. (laughs) I just love them.
2: So then it's, you know, it's the next day, and she's like, I want to do this and that. And he's a photographer. He's like, oh, I've got a job, right? She's like, oh, don't worry about it. I was just planning something silly. And it's just like... Don't mind me and my existence. Yeah. Uh-huh. Don't mind anything I hopes to do with you. Right.
0: It's not like he's not allowed to do his work over what she wants to do, but it was her response of like, "Oh, it doesn't matter if I wanted to do it, it must have been meaningless." Exactly. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Anyway, the and point she, is And
2: she wants to come with him, but he's like, "Don't. It's It's, it's
0: going to be a very long drive and you're going to be bored, and it's a really nice way dialogue-wise like diegetically to demonstrate the fact that he's going to be gone for a very long time. It was a very natural way to bring it into the conversation. We find out later that's because Rote hired him to photograph this one place for a night shoot, and it's not actually a real job.
2: Yes. And she does admit, she's like, I am a little nervous that there was a murder right Around the corner, because they basically. found
0: Lisa. Yeah.
2: And he's like, We live in New York City. Like, <laughs> there's a murder every day. Yes. But she's like, Yeah, but never this close. But don't worry, sweetie. I'm just blind. You just go. Yeah. Who cares about little old me? And then at one point, she even gets annoyed and she's like, Do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? And he shouts, "Yes, Yes. Yes, you do.
0: If the weather's okay, try walking over to the studio and back. No cheating.
2: Do I have to be the world's champion, blind lady? Yes. I feel like from his perspective, it's supposed to be, I love you and I don't want to be worried about you all the time.
0: Well, also, like, I believe that you can take care of yourself and you're not going to be able to if I just help you do everything all the time. There's a scene where she drops something and she's like, "A a little help. And he's like, no, you can get it. And he just watches her struggle to get this thing, which from a certain perspective is good. It's more the perspective of like a sports coach than it is a loving husband, though. Yes. Which is a little weird, but eventually he does tell her where it is. But he said earlier, if I didn't think you could do it, I, I would tell you. And then he eventually tells her, which is him saying, I didn't think you could do it. It's about her becoming, she's not yet, this champion blind lady, as she says. And this scene is like, this is where her overacting just kicks into high gear.
2: Then that's what I'll be. Yes. If that's what you want, then I'll do it. Do I have to be the world's champion blind lady? Yes. Then I will be. Be whatever you want me to be. Just tell me what you want, and then that's what I'll
1: be. Susie. Oh, I mean it. Shh. I don't want you ever to be anything but
0: Susie. Because that's the way I love you.
2: Do you? Do you?
0: What do you think? He leaves.
2: He leaves. A little while later, the tall, skinny henchman shows up.
0: So, we are not going to break down. Every single aspect of this plot because it is really complex and really convoluted. But there are a few things that you need to know about what their plan is. Mike is going to show up pretending to be Sam's old war buddy.
2: And he lucks out because she happens to have a tiny fire when he shows up and he puts it out and so he's then put into the position of my Somebody who's savior gonna help your, help and yeah, and uh-huh. she just believes every word that comes out of his mouth after that.
0: Yes. But I mean she does question him and, and he, she's A like tiny bit. Yeah, she's like, "Oh, you knew him from the army?" and he's like, "No, the Marines." And he looks at his little notebook that says the Marines and what uh infantry, infantry and all number. that. Yeah. So like she was trying to secretly figure out who this guy was. And he just happens to know some basic information about Sam. And so she's able to pass it off. There's even a great moment where he's like, Oh, a lot of pictures. He's a photographer now. And Oh yeah. Hey, there's one of me. And she has no way of knowing (laughs) the plan is send in Mike as somebody who she can trust and build that rapport Then they're going to use the fact that this Lisa character was recently found murdered nearby. The whole story that they're concocting, which obviously isn't true, is that Rote is married to Lisa and Lisa was found dead. They think it was her secret lover, but they don't necessarily know who it is, but they think it's Sam. And the way they want to find out is that Rote Jr., This young man, uh, the the husband, gave Lisa a doll, which is now missing. And Mike has to convince Audrey Hepburn that we need to find this doll so we can get rid of it and protect your husband. Because they're going to think that he's the one that killed his lover. And that he was having an affair. And when she's like, he couldn't have had an affair. Mike's like, it doesn't fucking matter. That's what they're going to think Happened, And Carlino is a police officer who's trying to, like, put pressure on her to spill the beans. And it's like, and then Rote plays an older version, the Rote Jr.'s father, Rote Sr., who comes in and is like, where is he? I want to find him. He killed my daughter-in-law or whatever, you know.
2: But he can't get away with it because...
0: Squeaky shoes. His shoes squeak. And so she knows. So there are these moments where we know she knows something, but she doesn't like let on anything.
2: I love that.
0: It's really good.
2: I love that she, because there were several times where I was like, she would notice that. And then it wasn't until later that she was like, why was everyone playing with the blinds?
0: Yeah, uh huh. Because they're using the blinds to do a signal to the outside. I love
2: that she doesn't say anything Mm -hmm. in the
0: moment. Is this apartment really dusty, Mike? (laughs) What? Why? (laughs) Because everyone seems to be rubbing everything down because they're trying to get rid of their fingerprints while they're in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's a moment where all three of them are in there at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Mike still seems to get away with it for a very, very long time. Even when she realizes that something weird is going on and the cop is doing something shady and wrote junior and senior are actually the same person.
2: Meanwhile, Gloria, the next door neighbor is going in and out of the apartment without the guys knowing she's a very sneaky little girl. She Mm -hmm. does things behind our main characters back several times.
0: Yeah. They get into an argument at one point. She just does not do what she's told at all.
2: Yeah. And that's kind of a key point. The, the, The story is is that her mother's, like, a drug addict and her father's not in the picture and all this shit. So, like, they kind of look as Gloria as, like, their daughter almost. Mm -hmm. But Audrey Hepburn gets sick of her because Gloria does things behind her back that she's aware of. Uh Uh-huh. But because of this scenario with the men, they get closer together and Gloria ends up helping her a lot. Which... In panic room, the mom and the daughter don't have the best relationship, yeah. and then this whole situation <laughs> brings them closer together. Yeah,
0: okay, okay. <laughs> the cop says that, hey, we're going to keep a patrol car out in front of the house, we're watching, etc., so now Mike and her need to take care of it really quietly or whatever. And she asks Gloria at one point after Mike leaves, hey, take a look, is that cop car still out there? And she's like, there's no cop car. She's like, wait a minute, There, there isn't? No, there's just this van over by the telephone booth. Like, what? And And it's so
2: great. She tells her, go upstairs and watch that van. And if anybody comes out to check on the phone. Yeah,
0: so if whoever comes out of that phone booth, as soon as they're out of the phone booth, call me. Twice. Yeah, and only let it ring twice and then hang up. And so there is this moment where the cop calls and is like, "Ah, you find that doll? And then Gloria calls, lets it ring twice, and she's like, ha. I know that the cop isn't real. And then Mike calls and is like, hey, what's going on? Yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. And then she's like, oh, God, I found the doll because Gloria had the doll this whole time. By the way, that's almost not important. It starts to the doll is what gets the plot moving. But it's almost unimportant to the point where by the end of the movie, we don't even know what happened to the doll, really. We know it gets cut open and the dude takes the heroin out. But I don't think we see what happens to the doll itself. Anyway, she brings the doll back and tries to act like she had it the whole time. Audrey Hepburn finds it. It's like, Gloria, you had it. She's like, I didn't know it was such a big deal. Yada, yada, yada. She yada it over the best part. She has the doll and she's hiding the doll. And she gets the call from Mike. And she goes to where she hid the doll in the washing machine. And she pulls it out. And then the phone rings. Twice. And she's like. And and Audrey Hepburn is. Oh, fuck.
2: It's a really good moment, especially since, like I said, throughout the film, Audrey Hepburn is way too melodramatic. Yeah. The parts where she's talking to her husband are just disgusting. She's just so melodramatic. But this part was actually quite good. When she's like, Mike? It was Mike? Yeah. The whole time? And she has a really good look on her face, like, oh my god. I've been putting all of my trust into someone who's been against me this whole time.
0: I wondered, somewhere around the middle of the movie, maybe in the first half somewhere, I wonder if the movie would be better if we didn't know everything going on behind the scenes with their plot, and the fact that they had a plan, and what they were looking for, if it would just be revealed to us the same way it's revealed to her. But, about halfway through the movie... Everyone comes in, at one point they're all there, and at one point everyone leaves, and she's left on her own, and at that point the movie very subtly switches to her perspective for the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very effective switch. It gave us just enough information, because we didn't know their whole plan and how the whole thing was going to be carried out. It gave us just enough information to know that they were a threat and why. And what their motivations were and what they were willing to do. It was a very, very effective setup. And I it makes a lot of sense that this is a play now. Mm-hmm. And why that first se- scene happens in their home when in, when it's the, the yeah. three dudes.
2: Anytime a movie stays in one place, check and find out. Was that based on a play?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, it was a very effective... Use of perspective to where we had just enough information to understand the threat, because if we didn't understand that, I think we'd there'd be a lot of wait, What's going on? And so we don't have as much of that. It is an elaborate plan. And you're like, what's the end? Like, where are they going with this? But anyway, they're they've been trying this whole time to get her to to get into the safe. And it's really funny when they realize that she doesn't have the key to the safe. Because the previous tenant left it there. She tried to sell it to them and they're like, uh, we don't want it, but then couldn't move it. So just took the key with her. No, she left. put
2: it down the drain. Oh,
0: yeah. Uh-huh. And the
2: guy's like, that's way too ridiculous of a story. There's no way that's true. And mm-hmm. she's like, it is. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to but tell when, you. Yeah,
0: they, they, so they, they, the whole plot is them trying to get her to open the safe where that doll has to be. But it's absolutely not because Gloria had it that whole time. Which I thought was also really interesting. But now we're at the point where Audrey Hepper knows that there's something going on with not only the police and Mr. Rote, but also now Mike. She sends them on a wild goose chase. She's like, ah, I remembered where the doll was. That's what she said to Mike on the phone. So when Mike shows up, she's like, I remembered where the doll was. It's at my husband's office in his desk. It's like two miles away. You could walk there. And so they do. Mike and Rote walk there, and Carlino stays behind to watch the place. And
2: and cuts the phone line, which is really good, because when they did that, I didn't know what they were doing.
0: Rote does that. He he grabs he, it with the We see him
2: pull something mm-hmm. up, and that's kind of all we get to see. And that whole sequence, I was like, I don't know what they're supposed to be doing because it's happening in the background of a scene that's happening. It's very obvious
0: that he's doing it. You just don't know what he's doing.
2: And then you're sitting there and you're like, call the police, call the police, call the police, call the police.
0: And when she tries. She
2: tries, the phone line's been cut.
0: Yeah. They eventually end up making it back and they say to Carlino, like, it wasn't there. And Rote's like, I'm out of here. You take care of this. And Mike says to Carlino, all right, bad guy or whatever it is that he calls him. Okay, bad man. Like, you're up. And then Mike goes inside to the apartment. So we're like, wait, what's going on? then we see a car run over a shadowy figure repeatedly.
2: And we know... From watching enough horror movies, if you can't tell who's yeah. being killed in that scene, it is the opposite of the person that you
0: thought was <laughs> yes, being killed uh, in that scene. But it's like over and over and over again. It's like, Jesus, he's dead. He's already dead. <laughs> <Stop>! <laughs> <laughs> he's already dead. So Mike goes back inside and he's like, when did you figure it out? <laughs> She's like, oh, you... You realized I was sending you on a wild goose chase, and he's like, you realize the doll's not there. And he's like, more than that, there's no desk there. And she's like, oh, poor Sam, he needs to get a desk. Like, she didn't even really know, or if she did, she's just being playful now. Right. How long have you known?
2: You've been to the studio, Mike.
1: That's right.
2: And there was no doll.
1: More fun still. There wasn't even a desk.
2: Poor Sam. You really ought to have a desk, but then you don't know my friend Sam and about him needing a desk,
0: Mrs. Hendricks. Here.
2: Susie, we're not strangers.
0: But now he's not messing around. Mike's revealed to be a bad guy, and he wants that doll.
2: But he explains, "I'm going to take this. You're never going to hear from me again." Yeah. Like, this is, I didn't want to fuck with you. This was not my plan. And
0: he really likes her. Yeah, and he's, he's really seen nice. seen the adversity she's faced. And, and, how, he, yeah. and he
2: explains to her, the only person in this scenario who you had to worry about, you don't need to worry about him anymore. He's gone. We've killed him. Yes. But they haven't.
0: <laughs> no. He's like, I, I've sent Carlino to kill Rote. You don't need to worry about that. Uh, but Rote, of course, was the one driving the car that killed Carlino. Not what was supposed to happen. And when he shows up at the apartment, he kills Mike. Yeah. And now Mike's dead on the stairs.
2: There's a long kerfuffle between Audrey Hepburn and Alan Arkin. And at one point, you think she's killed Alan Arkin.
0: <laughs> okay, so... <laughs>
2: and you... <wish> she <laughs> she's... She,
0: she has prepped the place because I said before... It's
2: like Home Alone. Yeah. It's very it's, much like Home Alone. It's built
0: to be a dark room. So she... Like, unscrews all the light bulbs and smashes them. There's this scene where she's going through the, the hall at the front of the There's building swinging the cane. There's only one that she
2: doesn't get. And I never understood if she meant to or if she do not No, no.
0: She meant to because she ends up unplugging it later hmm. to make it go totally dark. But it's really dark by the time Mike and eventually Rote show up. So then she kills all the lights...
2: Welcome to my world. Yeah,
0: basically. (laughs) And a lot of the end of this movie is in not total blackness. There are some shots that are completely black. Yes. But it's not total black. You see a little bit of what's going on. You see the struggle. She's running. And then eventually she fools him. And then they get into a struggle and she stabs him. And she goes up to the door that he's already tied closed and she's freaking out and panicking. She can't get the door open. She can't untie it. She tries to go down the stairs where she runs into Mike's body and she's freaking out. And then, so then she starts to go like towards the window where maybe she can signal somebody. And as she's walking (laughs) away, fucking Alan Arkin comes leaping out of the (laughs) darkness, not, and this is key, (laughs) not from off screen. This is not like that one Home Sweet Home movie that we watched. I thought
2: it was from out of screen.
0: No. The left... 15% of the shot is pitch black because it's the rest where the film gets developed. It's totally dark. He leaps out of the darkness, not off the side of the screen. Both Chris
2: and I were like, Jesus. Holy
0: shit. It scared the crap out of me. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's it's, very well done. (laughs) It's an evocative image, too, of him just like, because he full on leaps at her and he pulls her down and they are struggling. She ends up hiding behind... A fridge door, so where he he's struggling to get at her, and she's like banging on the she's pipe. Trying or whatever. to get the
2: the light out. Oh, yes. and the pipes. In, not three times on the ceiling if you, want you want me. me. Yes. Twice on, on the, the pipe.
0: pipe. If, if the answer, answer is no, no, this is twice on the pipe. If, if the you answer want. is yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you want Gloria to go do something. So so <laughs> Gloria ends up calling the cops. She's but, also
2: trying to close the refrigerator because door. Because the refrigerator door is a light. light.
0: That's how Rote gets the upper hand through a lot of this fight, is he ends up prying this door open. So...
2: What you end up learning is if you're ever in a home invasion scenario, being blind isn't the worst thing that could happen to yeah. you.
0: But she, she's now behind the refrigerator door and... There was a scene earlier about def... There's a lot of talk about defrosting the freezer.
1: Icebox needs defrosting, darling. Only my way this time. It's more practical. Use plenty of boiling water.
0: In this is, you know, it's the single door, but the topmost section is the is the freezer. And it's not just turn it to the defrost setting. He wants it done the right way, which is like unplugging it and I guess chiseling it out or whatever. So she, she talks a lot about how She'll struggle to find the plug, and he's like, I believe in you, I think you can do it, bye, and he just leaves. He's like, you're going to do this on your own. It's this whole theme with Sam. But she does. She manages to find the plug on her own and unplugs the refrigerator, giving her the upper hand against Alan Arkin again. And then there's You might be
2: thinking at this point, it sure sounds like she's a strong, independent woman. What's Kelsey so upset about?
0: It's her opinions and <laughs> the way she looks at life. There's a conversation she has with Gloria.
2: There's an entire conversation she has with Gloria about what she would do if she had her sight. Yeah. Those it's things include... Cooking. Cooking. Cleaning. And something else for her husband. Yeah. And it's not like I've always
0: wanted to be able to cook. It's more like I'm really upset that as a wife, I can't cook for my husband.
2: As a wife, I can't clean my house for my husband. Yeah. uh I have it written somewhere. I'll fucking find it. It's just everything that she wishes she could do is pertaining to being the perfect housewife. And there's nothing wrong with being a housewife, there is nothing wrong with it. But if I went blind, those are not the things I would wish I could fucking do.
0: Yeah, uh huh.
2: <laughs> not so, to mention, you know what the last thing is that she says at the end of the
0: movie? What is it? It's his name Sam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we totally didn't keep our oh, promise to shut Sam. up
2: about it. <laughs> oh, Sammy. <laughs> oh, my life is just about you. I am not a person. I don't have any actual desires. And
0: when, so, so what happens is we cut to, so the lights all go out. She screams. We cut to Sam showing up at home and there's all these cops there. And there's like, oh, we got a call. I guess Gloria got a hold of them. That's what she did when the, when there was the pipe banging. And, She snuck out. Yeah. mm -hmm. Uh, And so they're, he's like, that's my apartment. And they go rush in and they're like, we couldn't find her anywhere or whatever. And there's dead bodies. And and she, we hear her moan and then they find her behind the refrigerator door, still hiding, but Rote's dead on the floor. So she's struggling and they're, the cops are going to help her, but he's like, no, no, she can do it for herself. It's like, now is not the time to test her, Sam. There are two dead bodies on the ground. (laughs) Help your fucking wife out. Yeah. If she had her sight, you would still help her out. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now is not the time. Nope. (laughs) But effectively, that is the end of the movie, where they show all the people. It's very few roles. People actually, in this movie, there are a total of seven actors- There are nine roles because they credit Alan Arkin for all three of his characters, Uh, (laughs) Rote Jr. and (laughs) Rote Sr. So, Kelsey. Yeah. Lightning round.
2: I didn't really like. I know I said how much I love the '60s feel of this movie. I didn't like Audrey Hepburn's look. I didn't like her hair. I didn't like her clothes. The part where Gloria first, like, comes in and they have their their fighting. Audrey Hepburn has been getting irritated with Gloria for a number of things, on top of which she thinks Gloria was in the apartment earlier in the film, which she wasn't. It was the guys. But so Audrey Hepburn has all of this pent-up anger towards her, and Gloria is being a, a child and being very obstinate. And at one point... Audrey calls her a monster, you little monster. Listen, you little monster, I won't put up with this one more minute. And that's when Gloria goes nuts and just starts breaking shit in Audrey Hepburn's apartment. Now, was Audrey Hepburn wrong to call her a monster? Sure.
0: But she was being a monster. She
2: becomes one. Yeah. She starts throwing shit on the ground for a blind woman. Right. Right. I, I
0: And, like, have, including, like, knives and shit like that.
2: I just, I have zero compassion for people who are cruel to people that are disabled. Like, I yeah. just, I have zero tolerance for them. So, when Audrey Hepburn takes that as a chance to apologize for calling her a monster, it was, like, hit me right in the feels. Because I was like, damn, this woman who has every right to... To just knock the shit out of this little girl. Says, you know what? I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have called you a little monster. I'm being a bitch. And then Gloria helps her clean up the room and Gloria feels really bad.
0: Yeah, as well she should feel bad. Jesus.
2: But I don't know. It was a really nice moment. It really it rang true for me. It was like, oh, wow. Uh-huh. I'm a bitch. <laughs> some idea that, like, you don't fuck with disabled people. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit totally. how awful that disabled person was to you. You would do nothing but be nice Gloria to Gloria does person. feel
0: really bad, but, yes. like, yeah, it's... She was being an awful monster of a child. Yes. I don't know if Audrey Hepburn had any tattoos because, I mean, especially later in life. Most of the stuff that she's famous for is from when she was younger and... If you look up, if you try to Google Audrey Hepburn tattoo, all you're going to get is a bunch of people with Audrey Hepburn tattooed on their bodies.
2: Yeah, why are you looking for her? What makes? Because it, it
0: looks like she has a wrist tattoo or something that's being covered up with makeup in this. Really? Yeah. And it seemed very obvious to me, but I couldn't make out what it was. And I haven't really dug that hard to see if they actually have, if she actually had one. But... Uh, it looked like that. I thought I saw that. So if you know, let me know.
2: Interesting.
0: I found one one question online. It was a Yahoo Answers question about, did Audrey Hepburn have any tattoos? And there is one response, and it is literally just a URL to a picture that doesn't exist anymore. Huh. It doesn't say, yes, here's a picture. It's just the link. And when you follow it, it's broken. Well- Son of a bitch. <laughs> We talked about how Mike told her you don't have to worry about rote. And then there's the car running over the the figure. It goes like this, which is really awesome. It's Mike saying, you don't have to worry about rote. Cut away. Someone gets run down repeatedly with the car. Cut back to Mike. Rote's dead. I thought that was kind of cool, honestly. It was really melodramatic, which we said this movie has a problem with. Mm -hmm. But I thought it was a really cool structure of that process, especially to get you in the mindset that that was rote that was getting run over. So I thought that that was pretty cool.
2: There's an excellent moment with Gloria where she says, and this is after that whole thing happened. She says, I only threw unbreakables. Now, I don't think I wrote down the right word. Because it was obvious the things were breaking when she threw them. Uh-huh. But I think the implication is I only threw things that you could easily put back together. And she says, I learned it from daddy. Yeah. It's a one line. It's
0: a very subtle reference to why Gloria is kind of the way she is. Yeah. Why she runs around rampant.
2: And uh, it, it shows you like how much damage you can do to a child. Mm-hmm.
0: It was a very like heartbreaking line. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's a question that I would like to talk about. Okay. Why is it that we say that jump scares are a shitty trope of bad horror movies and they're a cheap tool used to scare audiences, but you're not really scaring audiences. You're just surprising them. And surprising is not the same as scary. But we praise the jump scare that happens in this movie. There are a few reasons for that. Number one, fake jump scares or jump scares that are entirely just musical stings are cheap tactics and they're the sign that you have no creativity. Good jump scares are a couple of things. Number one, the actual scare itself is really scary. That image of Alan Arkin jumping out of the darkness is fucking haunting. (laughs) And number two, and I don't know if I've said this on the show a lot before, but this is a thing. With folks like Freddy Krueger, I think we might have said this on like the last Nightmare episode. Uh, with Freddy Krueger, he does a lot of jump scares, right? He cut, Somebody's creeping around and then he's like, rah, and he like slices at you. In a bad movie, there would just be the rah, or maybe not even that. Just like, oh, I'm scared by something, loud noise, and then that's it. Right. In a good jump scare, a jump scare is the start of something. It takes you from really tense and worried and nervous, but you're trying to remain calm to absolutely frightened all the way at the other end of the dial. And your adrenaline's pumping. And now there's like a chase or something that's happening with Freddy Krueger. When he pops out of nowhere with his clawed hand and slashes at somebody and that jump scare is really scary. This is the start of a chase. And then more scary stuff happens. We maintain that level for a while. Just like in this. When he jumps out, it's not he jumps out and then it was his last thing he could do before he died. No, he jumps out and he grabs her. And they get into this huge confrontation. So, like, that, if you want to know how jump scares can be effective, that's one of the ways you can make them effective.
2: Or it could be something completely innocuous that would happen in real life. Yes, that would actually make you jump. That doesn't and then rely you're just like, on. The oh my god, I'm sting. such an idiot.
0: Yes, exactly. If like that's in, what you're going for, that's fine.
2: Like in "It Follows," when the mirror fell. Remember when that yes. made me scream Holy in, the shit, movie? in the middle
0: of the theater? <laughs> it was so funny. It was so good. She screamed so loud.
2: And it's like, oh, the mirror just fell. Yeah. But that's something that would happen in real life.
0: Because what happens immediately after that? When when you realize it's nothing, it's a release is yes. what it is, right? And so it needs to be a scene where we're actually granted a release. It can't be in the middle of a tense scene where we don't know what's going to happen. We get that jump scare where it's actually nothing. And then you try to maintain the previous level of tension. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You just let all of that tension out of me when you do that. <sighs> so we need to be done with that moment for now, which is why, and it follows why that works so well.
2: Mm-hmm. At one point, Audrey Hepburn says, do you know the number for the police? Yeah. When did 911 become a thing? It wasn't always a
0: thing. Well, because there wasn't like a centralized number you could call. You would call your local police. I remember when I was a kid, all phones, they, it was like this great new invention. We had a phone hanging up on the wall. It was a corded phone. And there was this little window that you could open up and there's this little card in it. And there were three symbols. There was a fire symbol, a red fire symbol for the fire department. There was like a blue police badge for the police. And there was a red cross for the nearest hospital or emergency room. And you would do your research, find out what those numbers were, and write them down on there. And that was just on the phone. That was what happened in cases of emergencies.
2: I don't remember a time before nine one one. I don't I don't know what it would be like to be like, what's the number for my local police station? <laughs> I don't know what that would be like. That's why. Years well, interestingly,
0: ago, interestingly, interestingly, nine one one started in 1967.
2: That's really funny. Uh-huh. That's really funny. Yeah. But what I was gonna say is that's why when I was told I needed to get this is years ago. When I was told when I was first told I needed to get my fingerprints done, I was like I physically went to the police station because I was like, Well, it's not an
0: emergency. Right. Yeah, no, of course not. You don't want to call nine one one.
2: I didn't know that there would be like a specific phone number.
0: Yeah, you think about the fact that your police station, your nearest police station, has a number you can call. <laughs> I just thought nine one one equals emergency exactly. and that's all you had. Yeah, no, no, no. This was That's why phones still had that, really. But anyway, yeah, the FCC passed something. The FCC and AT&T got together and established 911. It's like a common number that you could call.
2: It's a little unbelievable that they would go to the lengths that they're going to, considering that Alan Arkin doesn't seem to have any scruples about killing anybody.
0: Why not just kill them and then search yourself? Yeah. Because I think he came to the same conclusion that they did – the safe. It's in the safe. We need them alive so they can open the safe.
2: I mean, maybe I'm a moron. Can't you just get tools and break into a safe?
0: I guess theoretically, but who knows if you're actually going to be successful with that, and how you're going to get those tools in there? I mean, or it's the safe metal, out? but
2: I mean, like drills and shit. There's got to be ways.
0: Yeah. What's your point?
2: I'm just saying. It seems like they're going to an extraordinary amount of struggle to get this thing when they could just kill these people
0: and well, find it. Well, Rote's the one with the plan. and He's the one that's like kind of blackmailing everyone into doing what he wants them to do. And he thinks this is just going to be a simple one-night thing. Nobody has to die, even if he doesn't have scruples. He doesn't have a problem with killing them if he needs to, but he thinks it's in the safe. Let's get them to open the safe. That's his plan. It's not... Well, let's kill them because we can't lug this safe out of here. And maybe I don't have any of the tools that you need to get. It's 1967. Where would I even get them?
2: I don't know. It just seems, it seems odd to me. But
0: so, Audrey Hepburn and Terrence Young, the director, they did a lot of research to find out the way that the ways that blind people exist. In everyday life, how they cope with certain things. They went to a school for the blind that would teach this kind of stuff so they could figure it out. She talks about going to blind school as well. That's where she goes when she leaves the house for the day. Things like using braille, writing in braille. She has this mechanism where she can write in braille. They found that that way. Even though for the most part what she actually writes isn't actually real braille.
2: Oh, really? (laughs) No,
0: no, it's not. I guess in the play they use sugar cubes. She has sugar cubes and she uses them to remember that number that she gets for Mike, Mike's friend or whatever. She uses sugar cubes to remember that.
2: It was also very interesting to me, now that we're talking about the blind stuff, when she calls people, she has a very realistic way of finding the numbers, right? And that makes perfect sense for when we had buttons. Mm -hmm. Now that we have touchscreens, what do blind people do?
0: voice commands. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: That makes sense.
0: Yeah. Uh, And they have the thing, uh, the phones read them messages and that kind of stuff. I imagine there's a lot of ways for people to get around that way. So this movie did pretty well. It's a pretty popular movie for its time. And it used some theater shenanigans to get people intrigued in the same way that you might see like, The skeleton flying through the...
2: House on Haunted Hill. And
0: and House on Haunted Hill flying through the theater.
2: Or how Psycho told you that you couldn't come in.
0: Yes, specifically that. What this movie did is they put out an ad which said the following. During the last eight minutes of this picture, the theater will be darkened to the legal limit. To heighten the terror of the breathtaking climax which takes place in nearly total darkness on the screen. If there are sections where smoking is permitted, those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during this sequence.
2: How interesting. And
0: of course, no one will be seated at this time.
2: How interesting. Yeah,
0: and that... Obviously, it drums up a lot of intrigue, and people are like, what is this all about? And, you know, those sorts of ad campaigns were very, very effective. So, Kelsey, what do you think this movie has on Rotten Tomatoes? It's an old movie, so there's only 19 reviews. There is no consensus review.
2: 72. 95%. Wow. Wow.
0: I mean, you can see 95% of critics walking away from this movie having a positive outcome. Yes. 81% Metacritic. So it's doing pretty good for itself. CinemaScore didn't exist in 1967. I think it came out in the 70s, late 70s, something like that. As a matter of fact, Stephen King says that Alan Arkin's performance may be, quote, the greatest evocation of screen villainy ever.
2: He is a creepy dude.
0: He's yeah, he's a, he's a big villain.
2: He is a good villain.
0: He also lists this climax as his number one most horrific moment in cinema.
2: We both screamed. Yeah. It got both of uh-huh. us. Uh-huh. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah.
0: And Bravo made a list of the 100 scariest movie moments 15 years ago and the climax on their list was number 10. Nice. It's on a lot of lists that way cuz it is I was not expecting – I didn't know that going into any of this. I was not expecting this. And it was – I like, you heard me, I, how I reacted when that happened. I was like, holy fuck. Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. I just shut out. <laughs> Jesus. It was terrifying. It was super
2: unexpected. Yeah. Uh-huh. Super unexpected. Yeah.
0: So is 95% and 81% – is that overrated?
2: 95 is certainly too high. Sorry, I'm a feminist.
0: Don't Real make hard. it about that.
2: I can't not, ign- I can't ignore it. It's that.
0: 1967. Are you going to say I can't watch a black and white movie because it was filmed in the black and white era? Are you going to say that I don't like reading when we watch silent films? When we no. saw
2: Dreamscape, you didn't have a problem with me being upset about that.
0: That was a pretty big deal. <laughs>
2: Well, a, this is a big deal that to That was me. a lot
0: more than the desires of one particular character who's allowed to want whatever they want for themselves.
2: I'm going to give it a 79.
0: I will go higher than that.
2: You do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I really liked this movie. I, I'm going to give it an 85.
2: Chris doesn't mind when women have nothing in their lives except for their husbands, apparently.
0: Listen, if you didn't have to work... I would not mind if you were a stay-at-home wife. I'm not saying
2: there's anything wrong with being a stay-at-home wife. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. I have so much respect for them. Their jobs are a lot harder than you would give them credit for. No, totally. I would be disappointed in my mother if she went blind and said, God, I wish I could pick out a tie for your father. Yeah. God, I miss being able to do that.
0: It's the simple things. And it's the 60s. (laughs) I'm not saying that it's good. I'm just saying there's a reason for it. And
2: she's super. It doesn't
0: mean that it's not hard to watch. I get it. It's
2: also even. It's just that she's super melodramatic. Yes. It is. Oh, God. Yes. Very melodramatic. Yes.
0: And to the movie's detriment. Because it's like you want to laugh. Yes. And and it, it the reason you don't is because it's still a portrayal of a blind woman on screen who's in distress. Yes. Uh, just like even before there's danger, it's she's distressed and you want to empathize with that. But, but I mean, she just even, takes it really far. It's
2: not even just her performance. It's the way it's shot as well. There are several oh, times- Oh, they mean to do that. Where yes, she's really high angles. Which cause her to be vulnerable for the camera. But it's also constantly, uh, you can't see me, but like- She's looking up at the camera like, oh, uh, (laughs) you know, like I can't describe it. It's frustrating. And
0: it's definitely to the movie's detriment. Yes. But still, I, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I had a really good time. And that is 1967's Wait Until Dark. Before we move on to our next film, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition.
2: What director... Made 1997's Funny Games and its shot-for-shot 2008 American remake.
0: Uh, Henneke.
2: Can you remember his first name? Isn't it Michael? It is. Yeah. Kelsey. Yeah.
0: I have to change my question because the question I was going to ask is something I've already asked before in the past, apparently. So this isn't a movie that we've seen before, but it is a classic. What is the ancient Egyptian name... Of the titular character in The Mummy, 1932. Here's a hint. It's also the name of The Mummy in the Brendan Fraser movie.
2: I've seen the Brendan Fraser version so many times. That was one of the movies that was out on our trip to Europe, so I watched it several times on the plane (laughs) because I didn't want to watch
0: anything else they had. Uh Fuck.
2: It's not like Tut. It's not an obvious one, I don't think. Um...
0: It's a name you've definitely heard before, but you might have trouble recalling. I don't know. Imhotep.
2: It was a tep.
0: It's not a tut. It's a tep. It's a tep. Imhotep. Imhotep. Yeah. All right. Moving on to 2016's. Hush, hush. Thought I heard you calling my name. Now hush, hush.
2: So funny that you think of that when I hear it, I'm like. Rush rush to my heart Oh baby baby please Rush
1: rush hurry hurry love come to me Rush rush I want to
2: see you I want to see you get free with me rush, <laughs> rush
0: I have no idea what you're even talking about
2: Paula Abdul Rush rush No No Oh my god
0: Sorry Paula Aww. Written by Mike Flanagan and Kate Siegel, directed by Mike Flanagan, and starring John Gallagher Jr., Kate Siegel, and Michael Trucco. Kate Siegel is the one we were talking about in last week's episode. She was the one with the sensory psychicness in
2: when she touches things, Haunting she can see of things. Hill
0: House. Yeah,
2: Just like the dude in Rose Red. Yes. Hold on. That's him, right? It's the guy? Or was it a different character?
0: Wasn't it one of the women?
2: Was it? Oh, you're right, because she's like having sex on the bed.
0: Yeah. I uh-huh.
2: can't get enough of it.
0: <laughs> now, her and Mike Flanagan, the director and co-writer, are married. They came up with the story that together. Doesn't
2: mean, that doesn't mean she isn't a talented actor. No,
0: she's she's very good in this. She is. They came up with the story together while they were still dating before they actually married. They, they married the year this was actually made.
2: That's so cute.
0: Yes. It's actually one of three horror movies that Mike Flanagan released in, in that same year. He also did Before I Wake and Ouija Origin of Evil, oh. the good one, which Kate Siegel is actually in. He also did Gerald's game and Oculus.
2: Everyone says Gerald's game is good. We have not seen it
0: yet. And Kate Siegel is in both of those as well. So they they work on a lot of stuff together. And they're both obviously very talented. He managed to take Ouija and make an awesome prequel. Yes, he did. And uh, again,
2: that could be the writer.
0: <laughs> and Oculus was fantastic. So good. And they made this together. This and is pretty good. And Haunting of Hill House is his, too. So Real good until the end. Again, that's the uh, yeah, writing. it's a little bit of a letdown at the end. But yeah, it, uh, very good series. We watched it twice. We liked it so much. So anyway, what is Hush about?
2: It's another home invasion movie. Mm-hmm. But this time it is a single woman, not a married woman. Mm-hmm. And this time she is not blind. She is actually deaf, which seems like if I had to pick between the two... For home invasion situation, I would pick blind, which is interesting, because in regular everyday life stuff, I would much rather be deaf than blind. Yeah. But in this scenario, you find that being blind allows you to hear when people are in your home, and it allows you to hear when people are fucking around with the shit in your house. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and it's much harder for the deaf mute person to even the playing fields than it was for the blind person. Yes. Which was really interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought, yeah. So should people watch it? Yes. Yeah.
2: But it's much better the first time you see it.
0: Even the second time I'd say it's pretty good.
2: It's still pretty good. It's hard though, because it's hard. I already don't, I'm not a huge home invasion fan. They're not my favorite genre of horror
0: Yeah, Um, neither am I, like like The Strangers.
2: Oh, I hate that movie. Yeah. But these both have an added element. The disability makes it far more interesting, far more intriguing. The dread is much higher. The tension is much higher. You're not sitting there thinking these people are morons the whole time because your heart is going out to them because they are disabled. Yeah. Whereas in something like The Fucking Strangers, you're just like, God, you're a fucking moron. But anyway, (laughs) it's harder when you know what's going to happen to stay invested.
0: Yeah. But it also does get moving pretty quickly. And there are elements of it that are creepy just by their very nature and not because they're surprising.
2: And it was interesting because... I don't remember being frustrated with not knowing who the assailant was the first time because I was so wrapped up yeah, in Yeah, you should know
0: that ahead of time. You never find out who this guy is what or his what motivation his motivations is. are. Yeah.
2: This time around, already knowing like what was going to happen led me to really pay attention to him. And I'm like, I don't fucking know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his deal He's a is. a cipher. Yeah. And that kind of made me... Not like it as much as the first time, mm-hmm. but the first time I remember I loved it. So yeah. if you haven't seen it before, absolutely see it. It's on Netflix. And
0: you know what? I've seen it multiple times too, and I've liked it every time. So who knows? At least watch it once though. We'd highly recommend that. And you can take our advice or leave it. When we get back, we will talk about 2016's Hush. Did you guess it? I bet you guessed it. It's a movie all about a mute and deaf woman and how scary that can be in a home invasion scenario. So, of course, nobody talks at all throughout any of the trailers. It doesn't help. That it's a Netflix movie, so there are no like TV spots or anything else like that that I can pull from. So instead, what you're hearing right now is the end credits theme of the movie, and uh, just imagine like lots of heavy breathing and looking at things, and then we see the dude in the mask, and it's really, really scary. So, anyway, uh, we're gonna talk about a few other things first, and then we'll get right into Hush. All right, Kelsey, before we actually get into Hush, there are some things that have happened between when we last recorded and today. I just want to make sure we cover. Number one, the Doctor Sleep trailer came out as the sequel to The Shining. It's a book we've both read. And it's interesting because even though Stephen King notoriously hates the original 1980 film version of... The Shining, he, so much so that he made a television version instead that was closer to what the book wanted. This is legitimately a sequel to the original Kubrick movie,
2: in as much as it can be, as lo- as also being the book.
0: Right. Yes. Because
2: the film The Shining from 1980 and the book. Well, I mean, and, number and one, quite it, differently. <laughs> well,
0: number one, it kills off Halloran in the in the movie. Yes, and he's a character in Doctor Sleep. So like, or he's referenced in Doctor Sleep, so it's like.
2: So Wendy Torrance and Dick Halloran they do not get into a romantic relationship, but because her son has The Shining, and because Dick was there for to help them escape, he basically helps her raise Danny. Now Dick dies, and I th- I think I think Doctor Sleep says that maybe Wendy's also dead at this point. Doesn't really know. matter. It's been a
0: while since we read it.
2: But the point is, is that like dick had a big influence on his
0: right and as it stands as it stands with the kubrick movie literally the only interaction that danny and halloran ever have is when they're having ice cream towards the beginning of the movie and then there's that mental connection that they have that draws halloran to the hotel but like how are they gonna i'm so curious to see how they're going to to pull this off and make it happen? Because apparently it has Stephen King's approval. So I I don't know. But most importantly, it is written and directed by Mike Flanagan, the writer and director of Hush. Just we thought that that was pretty interesting.
2: That's very interesting. Uh, I like Ewan McGregor for, yeah. for Danny as an adult. I'm fine with that. They barely show us the little girl even though she's actually more like of the, the main, main character, character yeah. than Danny is. Danny is more of He's a like side character. like the Obi-Wan.
0: Character. Yes. Yeah. Which is so. funny
2: because it's being played. Oh my God, human. you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it looks like it's going to be pretty close to the book based on the trailer. Mm-hmm.
0: But it uses all the iconography from the Kubrick version.
2: Well, yeah, they, they splice a lot in there. and I Yeah, I really wonder how Steven feels about yeah.
0: that. And while we're at it, talking about new horror movies coming out, remakes and sequels, etc., we should talk about the fact that Bloomhouse is making another Black Christmas remake.
2: Another one?
0: Uh, Are we just
2: going to pretend like the horrible remake that was made ten years ago is not that never existed?
0: Right. And and a shout out to uh, Diane, one of our Twitter followers. Who shared the link with us as well? Yes, oh, thank you, Dan. Don't, don't worry, Dan. We heard about this one, but thank you very much for sharing that with us. Yeah, it. I. The only thing I can think, and this is what I, because Kelsey and I weren't together when I first saw this, and I sent it to her. And the only rationalization I can have about this is that it's almost certainly going to be better than the second one.
2: We we should hope, right?
0: So, so like, that could only be good.
2: I think it's weird that it's already coming out in December and yet there's no trailer
0: for it. It's like a surprise release sort of thing. Low budget, single location. I mean, listen, I'm not, at least it's not going to be the (laughs) other one.
2: Do you think he's going to chop people up and bake them into
0: cookies? Do you think... (laughs) Do you think that he has jaundice? And his sister has jaundice. Because, yes, he has a sister. Like, Who's the sister? I don't remember. I don't remember. It turned out there was two of them. Like, uh, it's okay. I don't want to think about that one anymore.
2: (laughs) It was just so awful.
0: Yeah. So, all right. I'm actually, I'm keeping an open mind about the potential. I think... This could be a nice salve on our wounds from
1: how the awful. first remake
0: was. Mm-hmm. And how much we legitimately love the original. <laughs> it's one of Kelsey's favorite horror movies. It's very good. And when they made that remake, it was just such a letdown. And it just came and went. And I would prefer if we forgot about it. So if we make another one. Maybe we can. Do
2: you think we're going to forget about the Nightmare on Elm Street remake and they're going to make a new one of that?
0: You know, (laughs) you know about that. If you had just surprised me and gone. When's the last time you've seen the Nightmare on Elm Street remake? I would have been like, probably in the theaters. I completely (laughs) forgot that we watched it for this show. Like, that's how little impact that movie had on me. So I'm hoping we can forget about the Black Christmas one in this in a similar way. And and this one will replace it, even if it's marginally better. As long as it's better. <laughs> Alright, that's kind of all I wanted to talk about here before we got into Hush.
1: Hush. Hush.
0: Hush. I thought I heard you call my name now. Hush. Hush. Yeah, that was in. One the, the next movie that we're going to be talking about next week, we'll tell you what that is at the end of this episode. <laughs> Kelsey, what happens at the beginning of Hush? Get us started.
2: It's totally silent when it does its promos. Yeah,
0: all the production promos have no sound.
2: Which was clever. Yeah. Also confusing. I went for the volume and was very confused. <laughs>
0: I was like, probably because she's deaf. <laughs>
2: It opens on her cooking which all I want to do is cook when I see people cooking. Yeah. And then I remember all the cleanup afterwards and how much that sucks.
0: Oh, that reminds me. We also see like a pile of books that she has.
2: And one of them is by Stephen King.
0: Well, there's Mr. Mercedes Stephen and King. and Under the Dome and Revival, but Under the Dome is important cuz Stephen King just just tweeted <laughs> about how like hey, what if Netflix Took over for Under the Dome and started it over from scratch and actually did the book this time. Like, I
2: actually, we watched some
0: saltiness. (laughs) We
2: watched the first season of Under the Dome. It was all right. I actually enjoyed it,
0: but we stopped watching.
2: Yeah. It didn't do enough to keep us for a second season. Yeah. I don't even know. Did it get a third season?
0: I think, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know.
2: I, actually, I But I didn't mind the first season, but according to Steven, it's nothing like the book. And no, I've not read the book because it's enormous. <laughs> and it doesn't seem like one of his scarier books. Yeah. It's more like a government conspiracy book. hmm And more like about how much people suck. (laughs) Yeah. And I would rather read his scary books.
0: So we're in her house.
2: (laughs) So yeah, so she's cooking, which just makes me want to cook. And she has a kitty that we get to see.
0: A kitty who, who...
2: Will come back.
0: Yeah, will come back, who she constantly refers to as that bitch.
2: She is a writer... Yeah. And she has writer's block at the moment. And then her friend comes over to say hello. And her friend... So it's important to mention that she kind of lives in the middle of nowhere.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know those places where it's just, there's a bunch of woods between you and the next house. And it's it reminds me a lot of where my grandparents live.
2: Yeah. It actually kind of reminded me of, like, the vacation homes that they go to in funny games, only this time it's more woodsy.
0: Yeah, uh-huh.
2: And these people are not ex- not necessarily super rich, but they're probably pretty well off. <laughs> right, but yeah, I
0: mean, you can, you can play your music really loud and have a party and not bother your neighbor at all, because, you know, while they're not so far away that they can't walk to your house they're far enough away that there's some distance there and things can happen and no one would ever know. Mm -hmm. But Sarah, Maddie's, our main character is Madison or Maddie. Sarah comes over to talk to her about her book, which she had just read.
2: Yeah, and her friend... It's really not important. It ends up not being important at all. But basically, her friend is trying to learn how to sign. We learn that she doesn't need you to sign. She can read lips like most deaf people can. Uh-huh. And we find out that she's like, oh, I'm I'm stuck with one voice in my head, and it was my mother's.
0: Yes, because the Sarah was like, well, that's interesting. You hear a voice in your head. Because she's like, well, you're deaf. You can't hear voices anymore, but you still hear one in your head. Can you tell me about that? Who is it? Is it you? Is it is it you when you were 13? Because she lost her hearing from uh, meningitis when she was 13. And she said, no, no, it's my mom. Uh, but she hears things play out in her head. And she talks about how she comes up with the endings to her stories And how basically every possible scenario plays out like a movie in front of her, in her mind, and then she just picks out the one that she likes the best.
2: Or she writes each one down, and then she chooses.
0: She says she plays them out in her head.
2: Yeah, but she also shows you she's written multiple endings, but she doesn't like any of the ones she's written. Yeah. But basically, I don't know why she says it's her mom's voice, because later in the film, we will get to hear that voice and it's the actress's voice.
0: <laughs> yes. There are multiple parts, though. There, there is a part where I swear you can hear her mom. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. We hear just a voice at one point, and I don't know if that is her or not. But then later, we see her kind of visualizing a conversation she has with herself. So while it is a poignant moment for the beginning of the movie, it doesn't necessarily play out that way in the actual text
2: i actually think it would have been clever if they had had like a mother like yeah kind of like scolding her
0: but there are a total of five credited actors in this movie and that's it we have the man who we're going to get a lot of later we have maddie we have sarah and her boyfriend and we have or husband and we have max maddie's sister and that's it that's the entire cast so maybe it's just like this low budget, obviously single location thriller.
2: I understand, but then why say it?
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I agree.
2: While her friend is over, she loses she forgets about the fact that she's cooking dinner, which causes her alarm to go off.
0: You get a little foreshadowing there.
2: Yes, and the friend explain like the friend tells us that's an ex- extremely loud Fire alarm.
0: A painful sound. She's like, what is that?
2: And she explains it needs to be that way so that I can feel the vibration. Uh-huh. Which, as far as I know, isn't that every single one has to be that way for for deaf people? But isn't that why they're that loud? That they need to be so that people can feel them for vibration, so that people can see them.
0: No, they make special ones just for people with disabilities.
2: I guess because I'm at a school, mine, Mm -hmm. the ones there.
0: Yours are public. They need to. They need to be all
2: those. So when people, when she's like, oh my God, that's incredibly loud. I'm just like, aren't they all? Because I'm so used to that. And I have to do so many fire drills a year.
0: Yeah. But like if our fire alarm went off and you were deaf, you wouldn't be able to hear it.
2: Okay. Our fire alarm at school also goes off all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. For no reason. (laughs) It's really lots of fun. To listen to
0: <laughs> but anyway, Sarah goes home and we see Maddie have a conversation. she tries to get her cat and feed the cat, and she has a conversation with her sister Max
2: and her ex texts her,
0: yeah, who we never see or hear, but they- you
2: think that's gonna be something that comes up later she it's kind of used it's, but no, it's it goes used nowhere very
0: briefly, but I like I like how. Subtle they were with it. Like, it was not like a key plot element or anything like that. Oh, he's gonna come in at the last minute and rescue her. Um, even though you might think that that's the case, it's not gonna happen. Sorry. But during this time, we are introduced to the man who is played by John Gallagher Jr. And I like, okay. Ev- eventually, we see his face. He's wearing a mask. It's the iconic mask that you see on the posters everywhere.
2: It's very similar to the mask that she wears in Eyes Without a Face.
0: Yes. Yes, actually, it is. But eventually, for reasons that we'll get to, he ends up taking off the mask. And yes, he's the guy from 10 Cloverfield Lane. That's another small cast movie that movie. he was in. Yeah. And he's in Short Term 12.
2: Which is also a great movie. Uh-huh.
0: With uh, with Brie Larson, actually, before she got like super famous. Um,
2: One of her better roles, in my
0: opinion. But I probably most know him from... Playing Jim Harper in Newsroom, not to be confused with Jim Halpert. Jim Halpert from Office, <laughs> played by John Krasinski. This is John Gallagher, <laughs> who plays Jim Harper in the newsroom. And
2: I think I remember him in that. Isn't he kind of kind of a pathetic guy who's like in love with a girl, who's yes. not interested in him? Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's that same character that's in every single You know, hour-long single-camera drama, like, that's just...
2: In love with someone who will love them uh back.
0: Yeah. Anyway, and that's all I can see, but he does a very, very good job of, like, shedding that persona.
2: He does, because when you look at him, and maybe it's because that's how we know him, Uh he kind of always plays the sweet, unassuming guy Who's uh-huh. kind of intru- into the girl, but the girl's like never into him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, so putting him in this role. It is difficult. I understand what you mean when you first see him. Oh, it's him! But no, he is an evil person, and he does a pretty good job.
0: He's got some scruff. He's got a neck tattoo, and like,
2: and then there's a part where he does play where he's pretending to be a normal person, and uh I'm like, oh, there he's the sweet guy again. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So anyway, he shows up at this moment wearing the mask, and.
2: Killing her neighbor. Yes. And she does not know because she cannot hear them. Yes. And And it takes him a while to understand what's happening. And he
0: ends up tapping (laughs) on the window as she's sitting down trying to write. And she's not responding. And he's like, huh. And he's like, you know, using his finger, using the knife, all that. and, And he's not getting anything out of her. And so he's like, oh, she's deaf. This is going to be interesting. And he ends up letting himself in. And she has no idea, and she's on Skype talking to her sister, Max, and Max expresses, hey, I don't think you should be a recluse out there all alone. You're isolating yourself. You should get out there, be more sociable, and all that. But meanwhile, the man is stealing her phone.
2: And taking pictures of her. Yes. And sending them to her. Well,
0: which doesn't happen yet. first, Max is like, wait, what was that? And... Maddie is like, oh, it's just probably the the cat, that bitch. And when she gets off the phone, she ends up getting messages. So she has a Mac. So she has iMessage or whatever on there. And so she can get the messages that are sent to her phone. And they're pictures of herself.
2: Sitting in her house.
0: Yes. And then pictures from inside the house.
2: Now, first she starts running around looking, right? I don't know if she goes to call 911 first or if she sees him first. I she can't remember. sees him
0: first, I think. Okay, And there, there's him and he's holding the phone up, showing that he has the phone as she's looking for her phone so she can call 911. And he's standing a little bit ways away with the door closed, just like toying or door open, rather, just like toying with her. And she runs to close the door and she's able to do it in time.
2: Yeah. Now, a couple of things that are frustrating. A lot of her home has glass. There's windows everywhere. Mm -hmm. There's the glass, sliding glass doors, all this stuff. I don't believe for a second that she has unbreakable glass everywhere.
0: Why not? This is a very nice, very modern house. And just by the nature of how windows are now, preventing you from... Preventing heat and cold from passing through the windows, by that very nature, they're really hard to break. Really? Yeah. He's having more fun playing with her at this point.
2: I understand. I understand. But at one point, he tells her, I could get in whenever I wanted to. Mm -hmm. And we kind of know that's not true. Because... Every time she realizes, oh, fuck, this door is open, mm-hmm. he rushes to it. Now, yes, maybe that's more of a cat and mouse thing to see. Will she get there before I do? But it feels, a lot of it feels like he's having trouble getting into her home once yeah. she's locked up the doors. And it feels kind of like he's lying when he says, I could get in. When and that may be the case,
0: like but it's irrelevant. The point is, he wants her to think that he could. And whether he can or not, that's the threat. And so as they go around, you no, know, she's locking all the entryways and everything. He's like, okay, fine. Next step, cut the power. So he kills her Wi-Fi so she can't communicate with the outside world. Because all she has right now is her laptop. He has her phone.
2: He slashes her tires so mm-hmm. she can't use her car.
0: Yep. Um... And in the meantime, while he's doing all this, she takes out her lipstick and she writes on the door, uh, won't tell, didn't see face, boyfriend coming home. He goes up to the door and then he just takes off his mask.
2: Now, here's my problem with that. Uh Uh-huh. If you cared so little about people seeing your face, why are you wearing a mask in the first place?
0: Well, because he doesn't care about her specifically seeing her face because he's going to murder her. And that's what he's telling her. That's what he's communicating in this moment is, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. If I just walked away, nobody would know who I am and you would get to live. But by revealing my face, I'm telling you, you are not going to live.
2: Right. I understand that. It's
0: a threat to her. But he doesn't want to be seen by any randos who might be driving by as he goes from house to house killing people. Remember, he didn't come here for her. He came here to kill Sarah. Sarah came here. Sarah brought him to this house. And he saw that there was this girl he could fuck with And now he's doing that He didn't come here with the intention of fucking with the deaf girl All sorts of reasons why he might want a mask And now this is a different plan
2: He then asks her if she can read his lips And she explains yes she can And he says like what I said earlier I could come in at any time Mm -hmm. But I won't come in until you wish you were dead
1: Can you read my lips? I can come in anytime I want, and I can get you anytime I want, but I'm not going to, not until it's time. When you wish you are dead, that's when I'll come inside. Do you understand me? Nod your head if you understand me.
0: Good. Then we can have some fun.
2: She finally arms herself at this point.
0: With a hammer.
2: Which took forever. Yeah. Like, from the get-go, I wrote it, like, several lines above. Why aren't you finding a weapon?
0: So, she, she first tries to distract him with her car alarm. And it can't reach, and she doesn't do the thing where you put it, like, under your chin and use your body as a conductor for the signal, or your skull.
2: I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah,
0: totally. Instead, she needs to open the door in her kitchen and crawl out there on her hands and knees and set off the alarm and then get back inside, hopefully... Having him go the other way so she can leave out another entrance. But it doesn't work so well and he ends up running into her and she gets him right in the arm with the, the claw end of the hammer. And it like really digs in and it fucks him up. What she was going for was Sarah's phone. Because by this point, one of the psychological horror things that he's done to her is knock on the window with Sarah's hand, revealing to her for the first time that Sarah has died. Mm -hmm. She didn't know that before this point.
1: Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But what she realizes is that Sarah has a phone, probably, on her, which why she didn't use it while she was running away from the killer, who knows.
2: Good point.
0: Uh, But she's going to reach out the window to try to get it. And the only way she can do that is with distracting him with the car alarm. So she does that. Uh, but anyway, when he when she gets back inside and closes the door and prevents him from getting to her and now he has that claw in his arm, he messes with her by going like, oh, are you looking for this? This phone? I have this, too.
2: That really bothered me because when he taunts her with the phone, I would have taunted him back with the hammer. i been like, how does that feel? You <laughs> motherfucker. Like, That's what I would have done.
0: Yes. Yes. Instigate matters further. Anger the person who's trying to murder you. Great plan. So anyway, he ends up cutting off one of Sarah's earrings and like dangling it in front of her just to like fuck with her and he ends up putting it in his pocket. So plenty of times she's trying to get out a dude has a crossbow and ends up sticking her in the leg with it. So she gets fucked up that way. She gets a hold of the crossbow. And now she's trying to, like, load it. And she's having a really hard time. And we hear him say, like, it's not as easy as it looks, is it? Where, because loading a crossbow is really, really tough. That's a lot of tension you have to you have to build up there. And she's been injured at this point. It's at this point that John shows up. John is Sarah's boyfriend or husband or whatever. So while she's upstairs, like, in the bathroom or whatever, trying to load that, this John guy shows up, looking... For Sarah And so The man comes around And he's pretending to be A plainclothes police officer Which (laughs) Just You should have seen the look Kelsey just gave right now
2: Never trust anyone I wouldn't trust a person In a police outfit But somebody Uh who's not even Wearing one
0: With a neck tattoo And
2: And doesn't bother to show you His ID Yeah Like are you fucking kidding me
0: he well, so what? People he, stop trusting people. Well, that's the thing: is John doesn't fully trust him, right? But he trusts him enough. No, I don't think he does. I don't think at any moment John actually trusts him.
2: He gives he, him, yeah, his phone.
0: He's playing around. He's playing along with him right now, and he ends up getting it back anyway.
2: He does yeah. after the guy likes. Slyly pockets it and eventually The dude's like uh can I get that back
0: Yeah uh huh
2: Which again that should be like a huge Like oh my god I can't trust this person what,
0: What the man's story is Is that he got a call in He was looking to see if there was somebody inside Who was an intruder And he ended up getting blindsided And knocked unconscious and he doesn't know where his radio is So he can't call it in So he uses John's phone to call it in Which is very fake. I responded to a call. When I got here. I found the place like this. There was someone inside. He came running past me. Knocked me cold. I woke up without my phone, my gun. Can I use your phone? Call for backup. I Should have called it in when I first got here, but I just started this job. And when I got here, the house was you all- The Deputy. Just barely though.
2: And all he has to do is open up his phone and see if the- if they, Yes. If, if they even called the police.
0: But he doesn't even get that opportunity or need it, because when the man takes the phone out of his pocket to give it back to John, Sarah's earring falls out.
2: That's right.
0: (laughs) And that's when John's like, fuck, this is obviously the intruder. My suspicions have been confirmed at this point. I know I need to fuck this guy up. And now I'm in danger because he has a gun. He talks about how, you know, oh, the girl that lives here, she's deaf and mute, so she couldn't have called in. What do you mean? You got a call saying that there was an intruder. Oh, but I think there's a spare key in the rock down here at the bottom. And so when he's going to look for the rock, John picks up another rock, rock. a bigger rock, and is about to hit them. When Maddie inside, worried that John doesn't know who the man is, starts banging on the window. And when he looks up, gets a knife right in the neck. Easy. (laughs) We've been getting a lot of that lately. It happens at least twice in the next movie we're going to (laughs) watch. Where somebody screams at somebody, look out, when that scream itself is the distraction that gets them hurt. Yeah. Like, if somebody looks like they know that somebody's there...
2: Yeah, I would want to see that that port part again to see what her perspective is, because if she can see that he has a rock
0: in his hand, Well, that's the thing is John's acting really natural, like so as to not startle the man. And so to her, it must look like he's just having a chat with this dude outside. And so she's trying to warn him and in warning uh, gets him fucked up, but does not kill him. He's going to die eventually. And he's bleeding all over the place. And he can't talk, but he starts choking the man. Like, they get into a fight, because he's a big dude. And he starts choking the man, and is about to kill him. And Maddie's like, this is my moment. This is when I'm going to get out. And so she gets to run. And instead, the man tackles her, and takes a rock, and just beats her to death death with this rock like just over and over and over again in the face now none of that is real her running away at this moment didn't actually happen and that might feel cheap but it's not totally a cheat because it shows you why she makes the decision not to run which if she didn't run you might be like Well, now, now's the time he's being strangled run now. Well, this tells you what's going through her head and why she makes the decision not to run, because just like in the beginning of the movie, where all the endings, all the potential things that can happen play out in her head and she chooses the best one for her. That's one of them. And it doesn't work. And this is the moment where she's talking to herself. We see her sitting there thinking, and then we get a shot of her looking at herself and talking to herself going, nope, you can't do this. Oh, if you tried this, that's not going to work either. And all these kind of scenarios are running through her head of what you she can do You can't run, get
2: out. you can't hide, yeah. you can't... All these different things that you can't do. And he's got the advantage. He has the advantage. He can hear you. I can't run. I can't hide. And we can't wait. You go outside. You're dead. Too many endings. They're all the same. All the same.
1: Which means there's only one ending he won't expect. He can't run, hide, or wait. What does that leave?
2: And I think it would have been more effective if it had been a motherly character. Yeah. Like, I I would have loved that. Like, a mom mom being like, you can't do that, you know?
0: Right, but what's happening here is... They're actualizing Maddie as, like, this character that's going to stop trying to protect herself. And the decision she ultimately makes is go on the offensive, right? Like, so her deciding for herself that this is what she has to do, she's going to kill this fucking guy.
2: Yes, and I love that, and I understand what you mean. It's kind
0: of a, you take one or the other, and this is the one we got.
2: But then why did you say it earlier?
0: totally, totally. yeah.
2: I mean, I, I can just, in, I, in my head, how I would have done it is I would have had a mother, like, talking to her as if she was 13, and when they put the camera back on her, it would have been a 13-year-old girl. Yeah. That's that's what you gave me earlier, and it would have been clever now. Yeah. And you chose not to do it. It would have been it. interesting.
0: I agree. Yeah. I agree.
2: But I loved it. You can't do this. You can't do that. You, mm-hmm. you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't
0: run. You can't hide.
2: What can you do? Mm-hmm. All that's left is attack the motherfucker,
0: mm-hmm.
2: which is exactly what I would do. If we're going to die, I'd rather die fighting. Come at me, Gmork. <laughs> if we're about to die anyway, I'd rather die fighting. Come for me, Gmork. I am a
0: triumph! That is a philosophy that Kelsey lives her entire life by, by it's the true. way. So John ends up dying and... The man isn't being choked anymore, so he survives. Uh, But
2: I do love that he's like, yep, wouldn't have won that fight.
0: (laughs) He does say that was pretty good. (laughs) He's he's a charismatic villain. Yes. Yes, very much so, and very terrifying. Yeah. I never would have won that fight. But then he finds the cat... And he looks at it, and the cat's name, this is where we find out that the cat's name actually is Bitch, which I loved. That's so cute. It's so awesome. And when he's going to, like, kill the cat or something, that's when he gets an arrow bolt in him because she was finally able to load the crossbow. Did they show us how
2: she was able to do it?
0: I don't remember.
2: Because as Chris, okay, so when she first tried to do it. I was like, okay, I get that it's hard. Mm-hmm. I get that she's not wearing fucking gloves, which I'm like, dude, do you not have gloves in your house? But she's not wearing gloves, so it's, of course, making her yeah. hands bleed. And it wasn't until Chris pointed out that she's using both hands to pull it up. Yeah. And both that whole I realized hands,
0: all four fingers on both hands.
2: That I realized why she wasn't able to get it done. Mm-hmm. And I would have been fucked if I had been her because I wouldn't have known to do that.
0: Yeah, the because way that the, explained. the 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 line on a crossbow is just long enough to be at its maximum point of tension, where it gets locked in place, and then you put the boat the bolt there, and then when you fire the trigger, it lets it go. So. It, there's not enough line to support wrapping around both of your hands and pulling back to its maximum point. It's just not long enough to do that. It's impossible, and you cannot load a crossbow that way.
2: Which is, which makes sense when you consider the tool that I've seen people use. Yes, they have a that little latch just, yeah. that you
0: hold with one hand, and you put it on the, on the rope, and you put your foot in the little stirrup at the end of the crossbow, and you pull them away from each other.
2: I wouldn't have known. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought about it until mm-hmm. you said that. So... I really wonder how she eventually got it to load. I don't think they ever showed us. (laughs) I don't think
0: they ever did. It was a surprise when he gets hit in the shoulder with the crossbow bolt. She tries to get back inside because she had to get close to him to do this. And she's running back inside. She drops one of the bolts that she was going to use to have leverage against him. And when she reaches outside to grab it, he just slams the door shut. The sliding glass door shut on her hand just repeatedly and just really fucks it up. Like... It's this is when it's starting to get like really gross and bloody because now they've both been shot with arrows, arrows, and he got the hammer claw in his arm, and now her her hand is, and arm are broken and her fingers are crushed, and it's really really bad. Now that he's fucked her up, he's like, okay, this is now we continue, and she's able to close and lock the door. So now he's like, okay, I'm gonna. I'm gonna I think it's because
2: he's pissed.
0: Yeah. He's and, really
2: pissed that she got him with his own weapon.
0: Yeah, and so she she sticks her finger in her bolt wound on her leg, and it really hurts, but she gets blood on her finger, and she writes, do it, coward, on the glass door. Because she's like, fuck it, if you're going to come, then come in, stop being a little bitch about it. Come in here and face me, then. He starts, he has a tire iron in his hand, which I guess he's had for a while, and he starts, like, trying to smash the glass, we see that in the background. Meanwhile, she's on her laptop again, and she's typing in at the bottom of her draft of her novel that she has right now, like, a description of the man, I love you guys, etc., etc. This is, I, I died fighting. You know, and, and the whole time, we see him smashing at this impact glass, just like over and over and over again, trying to, trying to break it. So instead, he gets up on the roof and breaks the skylight which is not reinforced the same way that the doors are. And so now he's upstairs in the bathroom and she does not know it. He finds her in the bathroom as she's prepared. She's like posting up next to
2: the Yeah, it's become toilet. home alone at this point.
0: Yeah, and she's like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to fuck him up. And, and she's like facing towards the door and she thinks that's the only way he can come at her from. He's behind her now at this point. And I forget what it is he says
2: He says I think you're holding out on me I think you If I hit you in just the right place You would scream You
1: know what I think you're holding out on me I bet if I hit the right spot I can make you scream
2: And she feels his breath on her neck, and she goes wham! Yeah, and she just kills him with with by putting her hand back. There's, there, her.
0: well, she like no. There's like a spinny thing. She spins around and misses the the shot he was going to give to her, and ends up getting him. Oh! Uh, instead, and there's like this slow motion spinning knife thing that we get to see. I like that a lot, but the problem is if he wasn't an arrogant idiot, she would be dead right now.
2: Mhm. But that happens a lot. Yeah. Arrogance does constantly save certain people and m- help other people die. <laughs>
0: <laughs> help other people die. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So she she stabs him but she only gets him in the knee. So it's not like lethal. And she makes her way downstairs again to the kitchen, and she's starting to, like, pass out because she's losing a lot of blood and she's in a lot of pain. And he comes for her, and she sprays him in the eyes with, like, bug spray or something like that to fuck up his eyes. And now, okay, if I'm disabled, you're going to be disabled, too. And she finds the alarm and turns that back on. So now he's disoriented, he can't hear, and he's probably in a lot of pain. He's
2: in a lot of pain. Now he can't hear anything, and it's hard to see things because of the flashing Mm -hmm. as well. So she is finally able to kind of put him on her level. Level the playing field. Kind of Mm -hmm. like uh, when Audrey Hepburn breaks all the bulbs in her apartment. Yes,
0: yeah. It doesn't help too much because he is able to overpower her. And now, just like he was being strangled before, he's strangling her. And she is reaching out trying to grab a wine bottle opener, a corkscrew. And
2: they showed us at the very beginning of the movie, which is why I was like, I would like a glass of white wine, because at the very beginning of the movie, she opens uh-huh. up a bottle of wine yep. to let us know that the corkscrew would be out and open. Yes.
0: There's a lot of foreshadowing. Like, everything that happens in this movie is kind of foreshadowed very well. It's at least present. Yeah. You know what I mean? They thought about all of that. And so she ends up, it's one of those things where he's just strangling her, and There's the thing I'm going to bring up wrestling again. There's a thing in wrestling called a rope break. If you are being held in a submission maneuver where like somebody's putting you through a lot of pain and they're holding you in that position, like a sharpshooter or a Boston Crab or something like that. The assailant has to break that hold if the other person can grab onto a rope or touch a rope. It's called a rope break. The ref has to come in and tell him, nope, you got to break the rope. You got like three seconds or whatever. So, the smart people are the ones that when they see the person reaching out for the rope, stops the hold, pulls them to the center of the ring, and starts it again. So, like, he sees her reaching for this corkscrew, and in his arrogance, he's like, "Nah, nothing's gonna happen. Nothing bad's gonna happen. He doesn't just just pull her another two inches away from it, and he would have been safe.
2: There are very few times that... His character upset me. Yeah. That's one of the times. And there's another time as well where it's like he just does something. It's like, I don't believe this character is that dumb. Yeah. It, it happens. That That's one of the times. I think there's one other time earlier in the film where it's like, fucking really? Mm-hmm. That's how she's going to get you? <laughs> like, I understand it's a mistake. I understand that a lot of people might make the argument He's in the middle of trying to kill her. He's not doing so hot himself. Yeah, he's
0: also really disoriented. Maybe
2: he's not even noticing what she's doing. Maybe he's just desperately trying to get her to die. Uh And so he doesn't realize what's happening. You could maybe explain this one away, but yeah. But He's a pretty competent killer. Yeah. uh I appreciated that. There weren't a lot of times where it was just her being an idiot. Yeah. For the most part, they're pretty even... Intellect-wise, which is why it's such a big deal that she has such a big handicap. Yeah. Because and if she didn't have that handicap, he probably wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful right. with her as he was.
0: And there's, there's like, there there is a place for imbalances of power, like Freddy Krueger, right? Huge imbalance of power. And that's kind of part of the point. It's all about fear, right? So... Sometimes, every once in a while, especially when it comes to a home invasion movie, you want a really competent killer, but you don't want an idiot inside the house.
2: Which is what most home invasion movies amount to.
0: So it's really nice to have somebody who's not totally incompetent. But anyway, she, she she manages to reach the corkscrew and shoves it right in his neck and rips it out and it's all bleeding everywhere. And he he dies. She calls 911 with her phone, which she now has. And then she walks out front and sits down on the porch where Bitch shows up. And she pets Bitch for a while as the emergency Kitty. cars are piling in. Kitty. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah. So lightning round, Kelsey.
2: I think I said this earlier. For a home invasion movie, this is very good. Yeah. Very, very good. I think what we just talked about really kind of helped it. the fact that she's not an idiot. It doesn't feel like either of them are winning because of incompetence, really. It feels like it's a fight to the death, and it's just that sometimes they're more clever than each other. Yeah. Which I really appreciate. But the second time I saw it, I just didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I did the first time. I think I enjoyed it a lot the first time because of how good of a home invasion movie it was. And then the second time I didn't enjoy it just because it's a home invasion movie. I don't find them very interesting. Yeah. And especially in this one, like when you know, okay, I already know she's going to successfully get away. I knew that.
0: How did you know that? Because we already seen it. Oh, I mean the first time.
2: Right. I'm talking about how the first time I saw it, I was blown away. Uh, Okay, got it. Yeah. The second time I saw it, not so much. Home invasions are just kind of boring to me. It's just a constant, will they survive, won't they survive? And, I mean, you could break that down by any horror movie, but I feel like there's just not enough going on story-wise to keep me in- intrigued.
0: Fair enough. I mean, it's a it's a small little self-contained story. But I think it's fine.
2: I think this is, w- w- like, probably the best home invasion movie I've ever seen.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think of another one that I liked as much as this. That's, like, comp- as competent as this is.
2: I mean, I really enjoyed Wait Until Dark. But unfortunately, it has a lot of 60s bullshit in it. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. I think, Rachel, you did an excellent job of putting two good home, inv- home invasion movies together. Because yeah. I usually don't enjoy them... And I appreciated both of these.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. There are a few things I wanted to talk about as well. Just small little things. First of all, I don't understand people who don't keep their laptops plugged in at all times.
2: My laptop is sitting here unplugged.
0: I I get anxiety when my laptop has to be unplugged for longer than it takes me to move the charger from one outlet to another. It's still mobile, right? Like that's the point of a laptop is you can have it there and you don't need to be like sat at a desk and it can never be unplugged. It can be. Yeah. When I move it from one outlet to the other. <laughs> like that's like it it really legitimately gives me anxiety when people have Chris their laptops unplugged.
2: we will get so upset if you ever sees me. With the charger sitting there, not plugged into
0: my. It's right there.
2: Because I needed to move it at some point, and I just never remembered to put it back in.
0: And then she's like, oh, shit, my laptop's going to (laughs) die. Oh, God. How did you get to 70% and not freak out? (laughs) Like, my work computer is a laptop. And that thing is always plugged in. Literally always. I take it with me to meetings. I plug it in in the meetings. We have a great outlet situation at my work they're everywhere anyway that's just one thing that that kind of gets on my nerves i also thought it was really really creepy to that's a great modern way to find out that you're being watched is to get a message through a message system that's pictures of you Mm -hmm. like that's really fucking creepy and it's instant it's not like Oh, somebody was watching me at some point, like you would have to do with like a film camera or something like that. When you find these cameras, these pictures later and you're like, oh, they were watching me at that one point. No, it's that that's right now. (laughs) And that's in my house. Like, that's really fucking creepy. I thought they did that really good. Uh, Everyone does a really good job of uh, taking care of their wounds for the most part, aside from like sticking their fingers in it and shit. But. People uh, apply pressure and clean them and put on tourniquets and, like, that sort of thing. So, good job to both involved on taking care of your wounds. On the crossbow, she notices there are 13 hash marks. There's a one, there's a five, there's a five, and then there's two individually by themselves. Certainly signifies his kill count, but we don't know under what context, and it probably doesn't include Sarah. So... He's just a thrill killer, apparently.
2: Yeah. Okay. That's another thing. The first time I saw it, I wasn't bothered by the fact that I didn't know anything about him because I was so
0: caught up in caught up in what was happening.
2: This time around,
0: nah, I got annoyed. No, I I mean that right there. That one thing. That one shot of the hash marks. That's literally all you need to know. Uh, that's that's permission for you to not worry about it.
2: Okay, but it reminded me of Funny Games. Sure. I want to know where this guy came from. I want to know why he's willing to do this to people. I want to know how, like, you're saying, okay, he's done it multiple times. How is he not getting caught?
0: How is he doing, how are those people in Funny Games not getting caught? Well, I think Funny Games is a little bit worse because with them, they're younger, number one. They seem to know people or know the way around this area. So their their reach is really limited, whereas this guy's unknown and he could be killing people all over the world for all we know. And, and, these guys, and with the guys in funny games, it's a philosophical thing for them. So why would they need to do it repeatedly? Why wouldn't <laughs> they just do it the one time? Why do they need to do it over and over and over again? Whereas this guy, it's just, no, he just likes to kill people. And that's it. That's all there is to it. I'm okay with that. Because it's not that Oh, I'm satisfied with the information I have. It's that I don't get that urge to need to know. Like, I'm not curious about him at all.
2: I appreciated. Wait until Dark's determination to tell me why these people are here. I appreciated that. <laughs> well, yeah.
0: I mean, especially we learn about the fact that the two men went to prison and that the girl, Lisa, I think her name was, if I remember correctly, she didn't go to prison. And she, even though they were partners, and how the one guy used to be a cop. And like, we learn all of that about them really early on in that movie. And this guy, we learn nothing.
2: Mm hmm.
0: Of course, we don't learn anything about Rote, either.
2: He's a drug
0: kingpin. Mm-hmm. And he... This dude's a serial killer. It's all you need to know. As a matter of fact, there's more explanation with this guy as to why he would want to kill somebody. Like, with Rote, you need to make the leap where he wants drugs and he's willing to kill people for it. The, but the murder isn't the motivation. With this dude, murder is the motivation. That's why he's doing it. You don't need to ask any more questions.
2: I suppose.
0: I know, I... Don't get me wrong. I totally understand where you're coming from. I'm just saying I personally didn't have a problem with it. Let's talk about ratings, shall we? Okay. What do you think the movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? Keeping in mind that it was never in theaters. Uh, it did like South by Southwest and stuff like that, but it wasn't like – it didn't have a theater release. It's a Netflix movie. 86. 92. Wow. Out of 24 reviews, no critical consensus. It has a Metacritic, though, of 67. Yeah. Which, Jesus, what kind of grades did it have to get to get a 67 average? That's harsh. That's way too low.
2: Surprising. But
0: 92 is a little high. Mm Mm-hmm. What would you give it?
2: I'll take it one step higher than Wait Until Dark, and I'll give it a full 80.
0: Yeah, now I'm starting to think that I would give this an 85 and maybe Wait Until Dark a lower grade. Because I gave Wait Until Dark an 85 as well. I think I legitimately enjoyed this one more. Even though, oh no, wait until dark had that jump scare shit.
2: <laughs> Actually, okay, if you want to base it on enjoyment, Yeah, I'm not, I've never done that.
0: It's just how much we am, like the movie, and quality is I a factor. I do it on
2: quality. But, I do it on. But that's why good. you can give.
0: That's why you can give really bad movies okay grades because you had a good time. Like when we uh, watched <laughs> Night of the Creeps, and we both gave Night of the Creeps. Hey, in Night the of the, the Creeps, creeps is not a bad movie. Quality wise, it's kind of eighties trash, and that's okay. But on purpose, right? <laughs> that's my point.
2: All right. Because it was such an impressively good Home Invasion movie, and I do not typically like them, I will give it an 83.
0: An 83. I will give it an 83. I will stick to 85 on both of them, I think. Okay. I think they were both very, very good. And it was kind of incredible because this movie is from 2016, and Netflix had some of its own content, but this was a very, very good Netflix original. As a matter of fact, both Stephen King and William Friedkin, who directed The Exorcist, commented on how much they liked this movie. And specifically in those tweets, they tweeted about it in those tweets, mentioned how it was on Netflix. And it wasn't like hashtag ad or anything like that, but like, and I don't think they would sell out that way, but, but they seemed like genuinely impressed that Netflix would would do something like this. So, for instance, Stephen King, his tweet said, How good is Hush? Up there with Halloween and even more, wait until dark. White knuckle time on Netflix. So, Stephen King, I don't know if, Rachel, this is where you got it from, but Stephen King specifically called out Wait Until Dark as being on par with Hush. Like, they're both similarly good movies. That's how good Hush is. (laughs) Uh, And again, we knew from the first half of the movie that Stephen King really loves Wait Until Dark, and he thinks that climax is one of the scariest moments in cinema. William Friedkin, on the other hand, tweeted out, Hush is a great horror film on Netflix. Terrifying. To which Mike Flanagan responded... So grateful that you enjoyed it. You're a hero of mine. It's a real honor. And Friedkin responded to that. Mike, great work. Just ordered Oculus.
2: <laughs> That's so cool. Right? But I can't believe he didn't respond to, to Steven.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if he did or not. Kind of actually. a slap
2: in the face. <laughs> hold
0: on, hold on. Let me, uh, let me see. Kate Siegel responded. Thanks for the kind words. Maddie doesn't exist without Bev. L- Lisey? Lisi. Jessie, Emily, and Bobby before her. Hashtag huge fan.
2: Bev? How in any way is she like Bev? Come on. Know,
0: strong young women? I don't know. In horror? She's, what she's saying is that Stephen King kind of paved the way for women to be, you know, strong and defend themselves.
2: I prefer, I just, I don't understand why you pick Bev. Like, I, Wendy Torrance is an extremely strong...
0: Uh.
2: In the... <laughs> Look. <laughs> Look, I love Kubrick's version, but Stephen is not wrong to be pissed about it.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. Anyway, now that we got totally off topic there, <laughs> but we have rated this one, and that is 2016's Hush.
2: Hush.
0: I have no idea what you're talking about.
2: I can't believe you've never heard I Paula bet,
0: Abdul's song. I bet if I heard it, I would recognize it. It's mm. just not in my head already. Kelsey, mm. what are we watching next week?
2: It's summertime, which means it's summer, time for some-
0: Summer, summer, time
2: Yes. Uh, we're going to be doing I Know What You Did Last Summer.
0: Yeah.
2: And- Club Dread, because I love that movie. So do I. A lot of people hate it.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, because it was the movie that came out after Super Troopers, which you hate, by the way. I just hate that movie. (laughs) (laughs) I love Super Troopers. Mm -hmm. And so when Broken Lizard came out with (laughs) the next one after that, which was Club Dread, everyone's like, wait a minute, this isn't Super Troopers again. (laughs) And like, they kind of nosedived after that. Broken Lizard as a group. They came out with several other movies after that, including a sequel to Super Troopers, but I think Club Dread gets kind of a negative response because of that. But when it has lines like (laughs) I think you're talking about my song, Pina Colada Berg.
2: (laughs) Play Margaritaville. I love that song.
0: (laughs) Darling, I think you're referring to my song, Pina Colada Berg.
1: Margaritaville (laughs) Play Margaritaville
0: (laughs) And I don't think I'm getting the words right But there's a song that goes Tiki took her to a seahorse whorehouse (laughs) Toki took him to a seahorse whorehouse (laughs) (laughs) Stupid stupid funny stuff
2: There's an amazing Running through a hedge maze scene It's (laughs) Funny. I don't understand how people it's don't. It's genuinely find
0: it. good. If Hilarious. You, if you take Super Troopers, which is a police comedy, and make it about horror instead, mm-hmm. you have Club Dread. They go to a Club Med type place, and there's a killer on the loose, and everyone's freaked out. Both movies, classics, I feel. What are you
1: waiting for? Yeah. What are you waiting for?
0: Oh, boy. <laughs> I love I know what you did Love. So summer. do I, but I got to say it did not age well.
2: <laughs>
0: Which isn't to say that I disliked it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll be talking about that next week. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com. Our Twitter is at podcemetery and our email is podcemetery at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us in your podcatcher of choice. Thank you very much for listening in the first place. We love each and every one of you. Until next time, I've been Chris.
2: I've been Kelsey.
0: And this has been Pod Cemetery. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words?
2: But I do wish I could do things, you know, important things, like cook a souffle, or pick a necktie, or choose the wallpaper for the bedroom. I don't
1: I don't want to live my life again I don't want to be buried in a bed cemetery I don't want to live my life again I'm addicted to the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape
0: if we have any uh sight impaired listeners out there uh let us know what what are i'm curious what are some of the things that uh that that you either miss out on if you've used to have sight or that you wonder about if you never have i'm curious i'd like to know that about you what superman nineteen seventy eight actress was also in Black Christmas, 1974.
2: You've asked this before.
0: Really? Are you sure?
2: I can't think of her name, so I wouldn't get it anyway, but I'm fairly certain you've asked me that. But no, I can't. Margot Kidder! (laughs) I just remember that, because I was like, she's a kidder!
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: She's Lois! She's a kidder. I don't know why I put that in my mind, but I did.
0: Mm -hmm. Like Dolly Parton? (laughs) I'm not talking about the thing you normally talk about, Dolly Parton about. <laughs> that is to say, her singing. Yes, um, <laughs> that's what it
1: is. <laughs> right? You're alive?
0: Yeah. Like even for being, she? even for being as old is she as like she in is, the 90s? which is
2: because she was in her prime in the fifties.
0: <laughs> she's seventy three. What? But she looks great for seventy three.
2: How old was she in Roman Holiday?
0: No, Dolly Parton.
2: Oh, is Audrey Hepburn dead?
0: Yes, uh, but we'll get all into it when we get into um. Wait when we until get dark. Into the plot. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Why can't I talk right now? Um, Light of my life.
2: Just gonna bash you head in. And the name is Bitch on its collar. Well, I was
0: gonna have, like, a reveal at the end of the episode where we find out that her name actually is Bitch. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> cut this out. Cut it, cut it. There ought to be a law.
2: We are living in a society, people. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Go to your computer and call 911. They did it in fucking Scream. You can do it now in 2019. Yeah. So... She does, then she sees she doesn't have Wi-Fi. <laughs> I think we should <laughs> I think we should consider this before buying our new house. <laughs> Is there any way to not have those things on the outside?
0: No they need to be accessible by the uh the people who fix, repair, turn on, turn off. They don't belong to us, they belong to the city.
2: Oh, so like when what's his name went around, and that's how he got into people's houses yeah. mm-hmm. Cool! I feel incredibly safe.
0: <laughs> anyway, can we please get through this?
2: We are discovering that we live in a society that is is, that is saying, Home invasions! Come on in!
0: Well, I mean, you basically just define the concept of a society. Bad things don't happen in societies because societies have built up cultures... <laughs> that that convince people not to do it. But the only thing stopping somebody from doing something bad is just deciding not to do that bad thing. Anybody can do any bad thing at any time. They don't because it's taboo.
2: Well, you're the one that just told me that my windows are easily breakable. Oh, yeah,
0: totally. <laughs> totally. Every single one of these windows and sliding glass doors needs to be replaced. In her crossbow... In her crossbolt, in her bolt wound on her leg. Sorry?
2: Cut that out? Mm -hmm. I'm a fucking idiot.